What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. It's Podcast Winterfell, episode 228 of the podcast. My name is Matt Murdick, and we are covering this week, of course, Game of Thrones news for our TV-only people, and we're in our 25th week of George R. R. Martin's A Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons tandem read uh, for our book people. And as I said before, I'm Matt. I'm from podcastwinterfell.com. That's where you can find all the back episodes of the podcast, all of the social media, contact, and podcatcher links. And I would love it if you would take the time to leave me a review. We didn't get any love from the U.S. stores this week, but we did get some international love from Gclift84 in the U.K. iTunes store and Grew2 in the Australian iTunes store. And uh, thank you very much for your reviews. Don't forget, reviews help me stay more noticeable among other great Game of Thrones podcasts or podcasts in general, such as the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour, which our friend Mike Hall is from. Mike, welcome to the podcast, sir. <laughs> thank you, man. It's good to be here. And, of course, you can't be talking about great Game of Thrones podcasts without talking about the Joffrey of podcasts. And joining us once again, the host from that great podcast, Bubba. How are you, sir? Matt, I am so excited to talk about these chapters. It's one chapter in particular. Now, I know you don't want us to say the chapters, so our in uh, our book, our non-book readers don't get spoiled. But let's just say it's a, the ninth chapter from a perfect king who faked choking to death at his own wedding so he could catch the real usurpers. It's like thrilling, and so uh, I can't wait to discuss them. Yeah, I can't wait to hear you and Catfish break that down in great detail once Catfish finally reads that chapter. Uh, And we are also joined once again by... uh, We're joined once again by uh, Susan, who joins us back. Susan, how are you now? I'm fine, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me back. Glad you could come back. And news is next. Okay. Uh, big news for HBO on Monday, folks, uh, and we're recording it on that day of, so our minds are fresh around these stories in particular. Uh, I guess we should start off by saying that the Apple event that happened today became much more of an HBO event, especially for Game of Thrones fans, uh, where the CEO of HBO, Richard, oh, gosh, I always forget how to pronounce his name, is that Plepler, Pipler, I can't remember, uh, announced that uh, the new cable-free streaming service entitled HBO Now uh, will be up and running for Game of Thrones. It's a standalone service. You won't need to be subscribed to the cable network in order to get it. You can get it for $14.99 per month, and it will be available in time for Game of Thrones. On the heels of that announcement, Uh, They also introduced a new Game of Thrones trailer, and we're not going to talk about anything in great detail here because I know different people are 
sensitive to different levels of spoilers in the TV shows. So we'll save that for our book conversation. It'll be right on the other side of it. So if you want to talk about that or if you want to hear that part, you can stay after the news section. But I do want to get from our panelists just kind of a general impression of this trailer as compared to the last one, uh, you know, what they thought uh, of, of uh, the shots in general, maybe not talking too much specifically about what we saw. But let me start with you, Mike. Um, did you see the new trailer and did you enjoy it? And did you enjoy it more or less than the first one? Uh, I mean, more and more and more, you know, they keep getting longer and deeper and better. And yeah, I liked it a lot. It was very exciting. It was exciting for me too. How about you, Susan? How did you feel about this trailer in general? Oh, I agree, and I'm glad that you sent me the notice about it because I hadn't caught it before that, and I think it's uh, I think it's really uh, exciting. Definitely adds oh, adds more uh, to what the first trailer had provided us for this season. Absolutely, and I, I, that link that you referred to was one that I actually got from WatchersOnTheWall.com. So thanks to them uh, for supplying a YouTube version. You could also get it on uh, via the iTunes Apple Store Twitter. They, they had it posted there as well. Uh, and Bubba, I know that you saw it because I got a message from you that even alerted me to it. So what, uh, what did you think of the trailer as compared to the trailer's past? Uh, well, I just want to talk about the two they've released for this season. And uh, I guess I didn't say it too much, or maybe this could be implied from how I talked about the first one, but I was a bit underwhelmed with the first one. I love the original song, uh, version of the song Heroes, but I just found the first trailer kind of lacking in kind of dramatic tension. And this one, what's interesting and great about this new one, which I just absolutely love, is it begins with like a ticking clock, and it actually kind of ends with like a ticking clock sound. And it's like ramping up the tension. And that's kind of what we want. We've been through uh, five seasons of this. I know that uh, there are times where it feels like this story can uh, slow to a crawl. But no, look, we are now, uh, you know, we're past the halfway point. We should be kind of speeding up, speeding up for uh, blow-up, firework, extravaganza at the end. So I like that this one just felt fast-paced, action-oriented, and uh, really got the blood going. I loved it. Yeah, uh, it it did get the blood going for sure. Um, And as a very poor segue, I will say that the blood must have been flowing for security at the the, uh, paint hall uh, last uh, fall and and summer. As uh, we find out from the Telegraph uh, in Ireland, the Belfast Telegraph, that evidently there was a potential bombing threat uh, to the studios uh, where Game of Thrones is filmed last year, um, or at least a plot to, to possibly bomb the area. The paper, uh, the Belfast Telegraph, reported that the plot took place several months ago but was kept secret until exposed recently uh, by the Telegraph's sister paper, The Sunday Life. Reportedly, terrorists conspired to leave a bomb by a catering unit in the paint hall at Titanic Studios. The motivation for the attempt is understood to believe that the studio was hiring former police officers to work security on Game of Thrones. Um, and evidently there's some political ramifications with that, which I don't understand Irish politics, so I'll just keep my mouth shut about that. Um, but the plot was foiled by an informant who alert, alerted the authorities and then security was beefed up. So uh, can can uh, I pick a can I pick a suspect for this terrible crime? Uh, 
uh, how about uh, Tyrion? He because he doesn't measure up, didn't want to work. He's what I like to call a double T. That would be tiny terror. Tiny he's a, terror. He's a tiny terrorist. He's caused trouble in Westeros. Now he's trying to cause trouble here. I think you've solved it, Matt. Yeah, yeah. I I knew that was going to be your first guess, Bubba, because I just <laughs> know how much you love Tyrion. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry to steal your thunder, brother. Uh, and and uh, speaking of more thunder, Game of Thrones certainly made a big impression in their U.S. sales uh, for the first week of season four sets in the U.S. Uh, now we reported that they finished number one uh, debut week before, but now there's some numbers that can be attached to the debut. Um, 526,851 units sold. A figure of $17 million is also associated with that opening week in terms of gross sales. So um, uh, a good week uh, for Game of Thrones. Now, it hasn't surpassed the season three total sales yet, but that was only over like 700,000. So depending on how many people waited a week to see if they'd go any cheaper or whatever, we we may be seeing some bigger numbers uh, for the season four sets than in season three. But the first week was absolutely astounding. Um, also, if you're a student at the University at uh, Buffalo in New York, then you got a chance to receive a very special treat regarding Game of Thrones. Uh, the University Student Association, in conjunction with Campus Living and HBO Go, is actually going to be screening the season premiere on March 29th, a full two weeks before the worldwide premiere uh, at their university. So uh, I hope that some people get to go to that and, and see that. Of course, we know that it's going to uh, have the world premiere at the Tower of London on March 18th, but uh, the U.S. premiere will uh, evidently, or one of the U.S. premieres, will be uh, on March 29th, the full week before. So good luck to all of you. I am Buffalo. Weird. I have no idea. Bubba, do you have any reasoning behind that or Susan, anybody? You know, you want to spread the wealth. I think they went to some big cities. I know out here in Los Angeles, the University of Southern California had the season, uh, an early season premiere for season four last year. So why not, why not go to some other uh, universities and uh, you know, instead of a big city like Los Angeles, go to a uh, slightly smaller city in Buffalo. So I think uh, I'm for it. I think it's a good move. Yeah, that's nothing like HBO to just encourage kids to stop thinking about school and their midterms or their finals and instead concentrate on Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, HBO's forthcoming over-the-top online video service, again, HBO Now. I already read that story. What am I doing? And uh, while you're waiting to cut your cable bill because you're going to be watching HBO now instead of uh, having to subscribe to the network. Um, you can also still get HBO Go on your PlayStation 4. The PS4 version of the app uh, will function just like the one for the PS3, providing HBO uh, or access to the uh, original series of HBO, including like True Detective, Silicon Valley, and Game of Thrones, as well as Old Affair. As with other HBO Go platforms, you must be subscribed to the network uh, via the pay TV provider to get access on your PS4. So what, can I ask, what is the advantage at this point of remaining uh, with the, you know, with the cable service version? 
Because I think, I mean, you get multiple, you get like whatever, family and Spanish and, you know, right? You get like six or seven HBOs. It's not just the like first run. But so is that right. the primary advantage at this point? I uh, think, do any of you consider that an advantage? Well, I would say that uh, in this, I don't know. I would say the one thing about a lot of these streaming services, when they start up, they had that infamous buffering problem. And so let's see, uh, as long as HBO Go can be smoothly, I know a lot of times uh, when there have been popular, like brand new Game of Thrones episodes up and stuff, HBO Go crash, so you would host HBO Now. Uh, if they've solved that, uh, it would be a, a fine addition to the mix. Well, and I'm not so certain that the HBO... Is the HBO Now service... I don't think it's been clarified yet by anybody, but is the HBO Now service going to have the in-episode guides like you can get at HBO Go? Ooh, good question. They'd be smart to. They would be smart to, absolutely. Um uh, and, and it would make sense for them to do so. But uh, I haven't heard any word on that one way or the other yet. Um, let's see. Uh, Mike's favorite subject, and you, you, I know you, you tweeted to me something about the mixtape earlier, but I didn't get a chance to catch it. Um, Complex.com was actually the first site that I saw that released an almost complete version uh, of a release from the Game of Thrones mixtape. Uh, the cut uh, de- debuted uh, Taleb Kweli's uh, Lord of Light uh, last Thursday, and the Game of Thrones official YouTube also released 15-second little teaser trailers of the Anthrax song that will be on Game of Thrones mixtape, uh, featuring the phrase, uh, you win or you die. Don't worry, folks, I won't sing it like I did the last time. Uh, Scott Ian about that particular anthrax tune uh, says that uh, about the tune, if you see the mountain on screen, it shouldn't be harps and loops. So I'm assuming that you win or you die is probably about uh, the mountain in some way, although I don't exactly understand that. Um, The mixtape is said to have uh, each track inspired by a part of season four and um, the Catch the Throne will be released in full on March 17th, St. Patty's Day. Get your green beer uh, and snort it back out your nose as you listen to all of the mixed throne, uh, Catch the Throne mixtape uh, tracks uh, as you're laughing hysterically at some of them, I'm sure, and enjoying all of them, I'm sure, as well. So, Mike, what was it you were tweeting me about the, the mixtape earlier, sir? Well, I, you know, so they've got uh, the first one on SoundCloud, so you can listen to it, you know. So I thought rather than continuing to be just kind of snotty and judgmental, I should actually go and try it and listen to it and see if I'm wrong, as I so frequently am. And uh, there were a couple of, you know, there were some songs that were clearly people that didn't, that don't really pay attention. But there was one song, the one that I tweeted to you was by this guy, Dominic Omega. And it was called Aria's Prayer. And this dude is clearly a book reader. Like, he obviously has read at least the first couple of books, not just watching the show. Uh, so, you know, after all of my complaining, when I went and actually tried it out, there's a couple of, at least on the first one, I haven't heard the second one, but on the first one, there were a couple of respectable songs on there. So I didn't find it nearly as annoying as I thought I would. All right. Well, we're going to flip tables then, aren't we? Because... Eventually, I'm going to be all not about it, and you're going to be all about it, right? <laughs> we'll see. There was one song on there that I was like, all right, that is a useful addition to the, the Game of Thrones universe. 
But okay. only the one. Only the one. All right. Well, uh, folks, uh, let us know what you think of those tunes as you hear them as well. Uh, Susan, have you listened to any of the, the mixtape tunes or, or any, seen any of the snippets on YouTube? I heard some of the songs last year. I haven't paid that much attention to new stuff. Um, I, I agree that it, to me it just seems kind of nonsensical if they don't if they're not from people who are, are really fans, then it's kind of like, you know, what what's the point of all this? But, uh, you know, if they get some good tunes out of it from people that uh, that do know something about it, then I think that's great. Yeah. Well, I also kind of think that, that uh, Dave and Dan like to try and push their musical tastes on everybody else as well. <laughs> um, we've, we've seen them do that a couple of times by introducing uh, uh, what was the version of the bear and the maiden fair at the end of uh, the season three episode last year. And um, that was the episode they directed. So I, you know, and I have no problem with that. It's their show. They can do whatever they want. Uh, Just as long as it doesn't ruin my mood about, about the series itself. And I'm all good with it. Uh, And it's a fun little sidebar, I guess. Uh, Baba, are you looking forward to the, to the uh, Tyrion uh, SoundCloud release coming up surely soon, you know. Oh, dear God. You know why I don't listen to these uh, mixtapes that they put out? I'm pretty sure nothing rhymes with Joffrey. And so, if they're not going <laughs> to sing about the king, what's the point? Yeah, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. All right, He folks, actually makes uh, an appearance in that Dominic Omega song. Oh, uh, well, okay. Somebody's trying to get a gold record. It's uh, It's it's part of the prayer, so it's more of a list than a rhyming section. So he actually kind of gets away with it, but you're right. Nothing rhymes in Joffrey. Coffee? Coffee? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, there is one other item of news, and I'm not going to go into any great detail about this either, but we will talk about it in the book section. And that is that if you are one of those people that goes to the HBO Guide, uh, they have the listings up through April 19th, already up there, and it confirmed a couple of episode titles, and SpoilerTV.com also uh, seems to have access to four, the first four episode titles, and three synopsises. So uh, be careful if you're really sensitive to that stuff, where you look these days on the Internet. But other than that, with everything else, we will be talking about it in the book section on the other side of Axel Foley telling you how to contact me, but let me ask everybody how they can be contacted by our listeners in terms of talking about Game of Thrones. Susan, how can people contact you about it? I have a Twitter at Black Eyed Lily, and uh, very welcome to anybody wanting to ask me any Game of Thrones questions. Excellent. And Mike? Captain Punishment Adventure Hour is still off and rolling, and we're awaiting the next release of that. Uh, but how can people talk to you about Game of Thrones uh, on the TV side? You now, How do you feel now? Actually, I need to ask you this. How is it now? Do you find yourself having to be more reserved around your friends like Axel and, and Heath and such <laughs> when you talk to them? <laughs> Dude, Axel and Heath, my lady who I live with, I can't say any of this stuff to her, you know, like I have to go in the room and shut the door and listen to everything with headphones, like, you know, it's it's in my everyday minute to minute life. So, yeah, it's a little it's a little tough, uh and I'm I'm hoping that she's going to read after season 4 
or season five. I mean, I'm hoping that she's going to pick up the books. We'll see. Uh, but it's at this point, like Twitter is really my primary outlet, uh, other than on Monday nights. So, you know, anybody who wants me to over nerd out on this stuff, hit me on like a Wednesday and man, I'm full of it. Uh, <laughs> Colin film, F I F T H C O L U M N F I L M. Excellent. And of course the guy who has no problem spoiling our TV listeners, about the fact that King Joffrey is actually alive and waiting to come back on the show is Bubba from the Joffrey Podcast. How can people talk to you about the imminent arrival, re-arrival, resurrection of the great King Joffrey? You can reach me on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. And you can uh, tweet at me what rhymes with Joffrey. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Exactly. Let's tell you how to contact me. Uh, book section come on up next okay guys uh, we do want to warn anybody in the chat room and anybody still listening that if you don't want to know anything about season 5 go away now please go away now uh, with that we're going to talk I guess the biggest news of course is the trailer that came out on Monday, uh, which for us recording it was today. So, Bubba, why don't we start with you and your initial impressions or any specific shots you want to talk about, sir? Hello? Okay, so we lost Mike. Bubba and I lost everybody. Okay, Mike, hello, you're hello. there? I'm there here. We go. Hello? All right. Bubba, your thoughts on the trailer? Can you hear us? I can hear you. What I would say, sorry, <laughs> the trailer, I thought it it is in some ways comforting of how close it's going to stick to the books. And then on the flip side, I think to myself, oh, my Lord there are just some changes that are going to blow people away, especially if they've read this stuff. So we shall see. Yeah. Um, is there anything specific that you want to talk about in terms of that trailer? Uh, well, the big shocker, and so that we're okay with uh, BR spoilers. I'm just trying to keep everything clear. Well, uh, I, I don't know. This is a weird territory because we don't <laughs> want to spoil our book readers. Um, that is a good question. Why don't we talk about what is the same, and then and then we'll leave the rest of it for people to decide whether they want to see it or not. Because I know our friends from Davos Fingers, uh, uh, some of them stopped watching as early as season one, and some of them are not going to continue to watch the show. So kind of weird. Yeah, it's just uh, there are some big changes. All right, how about this? From the parts of the book we've already read, and so if you haven't read these parts of the book, uh, don't comment, but uh, it's quite obvious, and the first trailer kind of hinted at it, and this trailer puts quite obvious, is that Sansa is there in Winterfield, and in this trailer she's in the Winterfell crypts. Holy smokes, uh, that's a big change. Certainly could be an exciting change for those of us who've read this far in the books. You think to yourself, well, we hadn't heard rumors of them casting a fake Arya, so is that a possible? Is this is the marriage even still a part of the the uh, storyline? Uh, very exciting, but also kind of uh, 
for certain people like me, where that was our favorite, uh, <laughs> our favorite section, a bit of a shock. Yeah, absolutely, and and um, and it, it's hard to um, actually, you know, I mean, it seems like the last chapter that we've read of of Sansa's uh, back in a feast for crows is. is at least if she's if that is the crypts of Winterfell, then I don't know. Maybe maybe that whole bit about Harry the heir is is just completely gone, right? Yeah, it could be. I, I would definitely assume that's gone. Uh, they they definitely are trying to be judicious in casting more characters, and so uh, characters that we've read about in that Winterfell plot, like Wyman Manderly, we haven't heard them cast, so maybe they don't exist anymore. Uh, once again, we haven't heard of the fake Arya casting. Uh, we haven't seen uh, footage of Mance Raider, who, if we've read this far, know that he ends up at Winterfell. So, uh, you know, once again, you would assume the storyline's going to be somewhat similar, but boy, uh, there's scenes that definitely don't happen in our infamous book in this trailer. And uh, other things as well. We hadn't uh, heard about... Um, we hadn't heard about Ariane B. cast, and so we've heard rumors that maybe Ellie... Alara Sand is filling in those roles. It's, it's really crazy. It is kind of what crazy to think him? about the. Uh, we met his dar in season four, did we not? Bubba, was he the son? Was he kind of the son of that one um, master that was up on the crucifix? Yeah, he had a brief, the briefest uh, kind of. Uh, you know, almost blinking your miss him shot in the third episode of season four. And they had one scene in uh, uh, Marine there. And I think he's in this new trailer. He goes by so quack fast, excuse me, quack. It goes by so fast. I haven't done my frame by frame thing, but uh, we'll have to, we'll have to find out. It's, I mean, there's, uh, you would assume he's still around. He's been in photos of behind the scenes of season five. So I think his star is still with us. Yeah, and I I think I did see him in that shot too, where he's in the throne room and and it's kind of a a shot a, a wide shot and and Daenerys is on the left and he's standing there on the right. Is that the one you're thinking of, Bubba? Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Almost like when she's talking yeah. about breaking the wheel. That's who she's almost telling it to. But I mean, these trailers can edit it, so you never know exactly what's what. Right, right. Susan, what about your thoughts about the trailer? Well, I really like it, and as far as any things that it brought up that that are significantly different from the book, I definitely see some things that are making me ask questions, but I don't see anything that troubles me. Uh, one, mm-hmm. one of my questions is uh, Brienne in a snowy location. That was interesting to me as well. Of course, we've read in the books that winter has come as far south as the Riverlands uh, in the Jamie chapter. So, uh, but that, it, it does imply either that Brienne has gone way further north uh, than we've seen her go into the book so far, or that Winter has come pretty far south, uh, as maybe we have read in the books before, although I don't think quite to that extreme. So that, that was an interesting shot for me, too. Um, anybody have any comment on that? She looks good no? in the snow. <laughs> Nordic warrior princess, you know. I, I just, I just felt bad for Podrick. He looked like he was shivering his butt off back behind him. <laughs> that was going to be my comment. Pod looks pretty sad. 
Well, one pretty- of, you know, this was just speculation. And so one of the things I read people speculated is that, well, maybe um, – Maybe, for example, she, uh, <laughs> she hears about the Faria wedding, but then once again, is the Faria wedding happening? And that would send her kind of farther north than she's been. It is, uh, mm-hmm. boy, it is all speculation. So in some ways, there's no spoilers, but to kind of talk about it in some ways, it feels like there could be spoilers. It's uh, very crazy. There's a shot of in the of John in like a canoe or a boat or something, and Tormund is in the boat with him. And so uh, if you put two and two with the Day of the Life feature, uh, you you would assume they're both going to Hard Home maybe together. It is There's a lot of uh, exciting ideas, but also a lot of things where all us smug book readers are going to go, well, perhaps they're doing this? Question mark? <laughs> well, right. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be fun. I think it's going to be just as fun for us as it is for the TV viewers on some uh, some aspects of the story this year. That's for sure, because we won't exactly know what's coming yet ourselves. We can try and piece it together logically, but uh, in the end, we'll just have to see. Mike, what about your thoughts about the trailer? Uh, Just kind of in terms of the conception of it, you know, the idea of it. I really liked the idea of kind of letting the whole thing kind of following a quote from Daenerys. Um, I find her... Her 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 opinion of herself dubious, but you know I liked that. I mean that gave me. I felt like it was a good kind of way to relate the rest of the characters to what's really going on in the story. You know because I mean this trailer, if if you're not watching it, if you're listening to it, is really kind of about how just pointless the rest of all of these people are. You know, and that's a that's a radical refocusing of the story from the way the television show has been going. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Daenerys has been, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot going on with her, and she's been kind of confused and, and trying to work it out and, and basically on the defensive all the time, and she's way away, you know, she's a long ways away, and it's really been more about kind of the power struggle, you know, the Game of Thrones and Westeros, in the show, even more so than in the books. And this really suggests a pretty radical refocusing of the storyline and her character. So maybe that's wishful thinking, but that was what I got out of it was like, okay, you know, and then it finishes off with Drogon, and I felt like, you know, I felt like things, hopefully things are going to move for her. Yeah, that's kind of a departure in itself, uh, one would think, because she does seem to still be a Marine there, and she's kind of, uh, I, I guess, there there are a couple of, of, of things. Isn't there a, a part in a chapter in a book somewhere where Drogon was seen sitting on top of a pyramid somewhere for a little while after he had killed the child? Yeah, but I don't remember her interacting with him. And she seemed right. very... You know, in the shot, you know, she seems very, she seems at peace, you know, and and happy that he's there, but she doesn't seem like she's cowering in fear, you know. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So, I thought that there was more kind of, it was more suggestive as far as her character goes than any of the rest of them um, when it comes to kind of the television show itself. So we'll see, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. 
some of the shots that we saw were, were reading uh, from trailer one. Uh, I'm thinking mostly about uh, what looked like to be the Dorn stuff. Uh, looked pretty much uh, recycled. I don't imagine they want too much of that story. Readers uh, are, are looking for that, um, and there evidently will be some changes to and So we'll have to see what goes on there. Um, a couple of other questions that I came away with from the, from this trailer, one which Susan brought up about Brienne, um, and one made a comment to me uh, on, on DMs on Twitter today saying, hey, we're going to see your favorite bridge, it looks like. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just as long as Tyrion isn't describing everything he sees as he walks around uh, over there, then I'll be all right with that. Uh, I'll, I'll be okay, but I, I don't. I don't need a whole episode exploring, you know, the different nooks and crannies of Atlantis myself. Um, a couple of other shots that were those those soldiers with the shields that seem to have the 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 symbol of of Aaron House Aaron on them showing up again. They were in briefly in trailer one. Here they they're going into some place at trailer two. Bubba, was that Winterfell? It almost seemed like either it was either Winterfell or Harrenhal to me uh, that those soldiers were going into. Yeah, once again, I, I, once again, I, I feel like this is a spoiler for the TV show only. It's so confusing, but I would imagine, I would honestly imagine that this is them going to Winterfell and these soldiers from the Vale is how uh, crazy old Sansa Stark gets to Winterfell. I mean, this is it's trying to put two and two together and kind of make sense of what we're seeing. And that seems to be the only thing that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, and I guess that's really it for, for my opinions, uh, about the trailer. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the HBO guide and what it has revealed and what uh, spoiler TV.com has revealed. Um, SpoilerTV.com actually uh, gave four uh, episode titles for the first four episodes of Game of Thrones. Now, my look at the HBO Guide only revealed uh, the contents of two episodes, but they did include synopsises, and I I don't know if we want to get into that or not, but uh, we can give you the titles at least. Um, According to SpoilerTV.com, Season 5, Episode 1 is entitled The Wars to Come, um, then uh, episode two is entitled The House of Black and White. Uh, episode three is entitled High Sparrow. And episode four is entitled The Sons of the Harpy. Um, there are all, all things that we're, we're pretty familiar with in terms of our book reading. Um, what do you think? Should I talk about the synopsis on these? Or do, I mean, I don't that it will really, it seems to be rooted pretty much in four, I guess, or or a little bit of the early Danny story from book five, right? Yeah, I would say listen to these if if you're a book reader or if you're, you know, these are kind of vague generalities or <laughs> because they're not, obviously they're not going to spoil anything on the show uh, in a little synopsis for TV Guide. Right. Okay, so here's a synopsis for Season 5, Episode 1, The Wars to Come. Cersei and Jaime adjust to a world without Tywin. Varys reveals a conspiracy to Tyrion. Danny faces a new threat to her rule. Jon is caught between two kings. And, of course, the episode written by Benioff and Weiss 
directed by Michael Slovis. Um, so episode two, entitled The House of Black and White, Arya arrives in Bravos. Pod and Brienne run into trouble on the road. Cersei fears for her daughter's safety in Dort as Ilaria Sand seeks revenge for Oberyn's death. Stannis tempts John, um, and an advisor tempts Danny. Again, written by Benioff and Weiss and directed by Michael Slovis. Episode 3, The High Sparrow. In Bravos, Arya sees the many-faced god in King's Landing. Queen Marjorie enjoys her new husband. <laughs> uh, Tyrion and Varys walk the, the long bridge of Volantis. And there it is. Uh, and this one written by Benioff and Weiss and directed by Mike Mylod. I guess that's how you say his name. And then, of course, again, the only thing I have for episode four is the title, Sons of the Harpy. Now, again, these are, according to uh, SpoilerTV.com, and the only two that I can confirm are actually up there at the HBO Guide or episodes one and two in terms of title and, and synopsis. But I can't imagine that they would be too far off. Um, any thoughts on any of this, guys, before we move on to the book section, finally? I'll jump in and say that the, certainly the first episode uh, description explains a lot of stuff that the, even our non-book readers already know. When it says John is torn between between two kings, well, who were the two kings he was dealing with at episode 10? He was dealing with King Beyond the Wall, Mance Raider, and he was dealing with King Stannis Baratheon. So that's kind of obvious. Obviously, we saw Tywin die, so Jamie and Cersei are going to have to deal with the aftermath of him. I think the, if any... if Non-book readers look at a map, though, and if they see Tyrion and Varys uh, on that long bridge of Lantis, they might, if they haven't already figured out where uh, those two crazy kids might be headed on their journey <laughs> in Season 5. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, very good. Very good. Any other thoughts, Michael? Any thoughts about these, sir? No, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I just, uh, thank you for I'm ready for Episode 2 already. I was already ready enough for episode one, you know, but now I'm really ready for episode two. Yeah, let's go. Uh, I'm ready. Let's do this. Let's see these episodes. Yeah, well, we're only a little over a month away now, guys. We're we're getting closer. Oh. We're getting much closer, much closer. We still have we still have uh, two more weeks after this one of, of book stuff. Susan, any oh, thoughts about uh, any of these descriptions? Well, I mean, the the second through fourth titles are extremely self-explanatory. I thought the first title was a little odd, The Wars to Come. But, um, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Okay. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's turn to our book discussion uh, for this week. We have five chapters. John 11, The Discarded Knight, The Spurned Suitor, The Griffin Reborn, and The Sacrifice. Um, so, uh, the, who you're talking about is getting more and more vague if you, if you haven't read these chapters. Uh, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, Mike, let me start with you, brother. Uh, overall impression of these five chapters. I'm just confused. <laughs> I mean, we're getting closer to the end and they're just, I don't understand what is happening or where it's going or why it's happening. And who is Connington again? (laughs) (laughs) That's my overall. I really, like, I had to, like, you know, Westerosopedia John Connington to get caught back up. Oh, I thought the Griffin would have given it away. 
Uh, but, uh, yeah, I got you. I got you. It's been a long time since we heard anything from him, so I, I totally understand that. Susan, how about you, impressions? Uh, I I like these chapters. Uh, I especially like the John chapter at the beginning. But, uh, you know, I understand. I understand Mike's feelings. Right on. And uh, Bubba, do you have any uh, like to shed on uh, initial reactions to these chapters? Well, I... I feel like this is a, a change of pace for me, but call me crazy. I, I, while there would no, none of these would ever be called my favorite chapters, there was almost a, a bizarre enjoyment I got from them. I, I think what Mike and everybody is going to be wondering about is here we're at the end of this book, the end of this book, and suddenly we're dealing with uh, chapters around Barristan, Quentin Martell, uh, John Connington, and uh, Asha slash Yara Greyjoy. I mean, you'd be thinking like, wait a minute, where are our main characters? But it's almost kind of fun that these kind of people on the edges seem to be playing such a big role in the events happening right at this moment, rather than the main characters. And while, uh, once again, uh, they're, I wouldn't call any of them a great chapter, I did kind of like what these uh, outside perspectives kind of brought, and how these kind of quote-unquote minor characters are suddenly about to have... Uh, big kind of effects on the world as we know it. All right. Excellent. And we'll go on to John 11. I'm sorry, John 12, isn't it? It's John 12. Uh, John has a strange dream, then awakes and prepares to begin overwatching Tormund's wildlings come through the wall to safety. He speaks his warnings to his men and talks to Ed before taking his position to meet them. Hostages are brought through first, the last of them being Tormund's own son. Then the fighters and the rest come through while John and Tormund talk about the different peoples, the Horn of Jaramon, and others. Once the entire group is across to the Castle Black side, John receives an ominous message regarding Hard Home. Susan, why don't we start with you? You haven't been with us for a while, so uh, first thoughts about this chapter. Well, I think this dream at the beginning is very interesting. Uh, some of the imagery in it, like the fact that John is armored in black ice and his blade burned red, uh, you know, those two things I think are, are pretty symbolic. Um, and bring oh, Susan, up some... Susan, pretty symbolic. Come on, just say it like it is. <laughs> A blade burning red, a.k.a. Lightbringer. Hello. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I was, I was getting to that. I was going to say, you know, <laughs> you know the Zora Ahai uh, imagery is, is very strong there. Uh, and uh, and then the individuals that he's cutting down, I mean, some of those, and how when he, you know, cuts down uh, Rob, he says, I am the Lord of Winterfell. Um, very, very interesting, and, and the raven waking him up, and uh, some of the uh, the ravens uh, actually calling him Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Oh uh, well, uh, the the whole the whole Jon Snow thing to me, uh, I mean that that of course you know I would just say my famous phrase brand brand brand, but I don't think it needs to be said. Um, there was one person you talked about the people he was cutting down that I, that I found very interesting, uh, a gaunt man with filed teeth. And when I first thought that of that, I thought of fighter 
because it seemed like everybody else that was coming at him was dead. But I'm not so – Biter was never described as gaunt, I don't think, ever. Um, so so I'm wondering, could this possibly – Susan, do you think that he could possibly be dreaming about Theon there? Gosh, I don't I – don't. I don't know, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I looked closely at those different names, trying to figure out the significance of these individuals. I mean, some of them were obviously, you know, Corin Handhand, who he did kill himself, and uh, you know, individuals who he had uh, been involved with in the the war there at the Wall with Donald Moy and this uh, Death Dick Follard. Um, I don't know, you know. I'm not 100% sure, you know, this is some, something to do with the fact that, you know, is he going to re-encounter these people again in some manner, or is it just that, uh, you know, they're significant people to him and, and in light of the, the things to come and his role in them that they just came up as part of this? Yeah. Well, oh, Matt, I, go I, Matt I think you nailed it. Yeah. I think you nailed it. I think that is Theon, who's quote-unquote still alive. Uh, I think that's good. Do you want to tell me, who, because I haven't figured out, who's the guy in the shirt of silver scales? Ooh, that one I don't know. Well, do you have an idea? No, I I, I wish, because, uh, you know, it feels like <laughs> feels like uh, old Barton doesn't get so specific. You know, he was talking about chopping down people left and right, and then the fact that he suddenly had very apt descriptions for them. I, I was blown away. I kept waiting for Benjamin to pop up. But there's no reason to think that he would be the one with the silver scales, right? You wouldn't. I mean, he was never described as having worn silver scales. So, uh, oh boy, so interesting. Um. So, is this John a, a dream of John's own connection with gods or whatever, or go crazy crackpot here? Like I said, I was going to. Is this another one of those glass candle dreams that somebody is sending? Um, any thoughts on that? Just call me crazy. It's okay. Well, I, Matt, <laughs> I want to go one further. I felt like this dream should have come with uh, the first words in it should have been, spoiler alert, I think we're getting uh, maybe a vision to the future. Like this is something mm. that could be happening. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out who the guy with silver scales is, trying to find the broken sword or what sword has three sapphires in its hilt. Uh, you know, the, our good buddy Jorman's horn keeps coming up. Uh, I thought this, I thought this was like previewing the end, like his wow. own house of the undying. That's Mickey wonder. That's interesting. Very interesting. Mike, let's go to you with a thought, sir. Uh, it's just, uh, this is a good chapter overall. You know, I like, uh, we've talked about, you know, like the Tormund before, and and I kind of uh, enjoyed John's sense of responsibility, you know, and and kind of fairness, and I thought it was a good chapter overall. And you know, it was uh, not like a lot of surprises. I mean, that's the thing. Like we're still talking about the first page and a half, really, because that was <laughs> probably the most interesting part of the chapter. You know, just, just especially in terms of speculation and. I read the crow saying his full name over and over and over like it's more than one sentence and I was actually going to get something out of it. 
but overall, I thought it was a good chapter. You know, it moved really well and, and left us with some pretty serious questions. I hadn't thought it out quite as far out, quite as far as Bubba has, but I really like that. I think that's a good idea. I like that perspective. But I don't, would he be, so you're saying like kind of, would these people be coming back as White Walkers or how would this become more literal? Man, I hope not. <laughs> I don't want to see some of these people as White Walkers. <laughs> but a lot of people have have suggested that that may, may in fact happen. Something like that. Yeah. Bob, are you with us? Yeah, I was just saying that uh, I was just, sorry, thinking to myself still as I'm trying to solve some of these mysteries. I love the shout out to Baramir Sixkins. I, I, I think maybe... You know how in the world is this not foreshadowing stuff? How is the how is the fact uh, that isn't part of the first page about the fact that Ghost hates Barack, the skin changer, and his boar? How is that not foreshadow, foreshadowing stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the chapter ends on a, a thing where Hardhome is pretty screwed. Uh, there's an infamous uh, saying: "Dead things in the wood, dead things in the water." Eleven ships w- went, only six are left. Yay! Can you say cluster John Snow? <laughs> yeah, poor John. He's just not getting very good luck any any way he turns uh, right now. Uh, neither is the people who print my Kindle version of this book. Uh, Tormund Giants Babe. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Tormund Giants Babe. Kindle people, get your stuff together. Um, uh, and yeah, Mike... Uh, Corn King Snow, John Snow. Yeah. Bran is trying Locked to tell John to eat. What does Corn King mean? I mean, that because he, he, he kind of keeps saying that in, in succession as well, right? But and what Corn doesn't really play a part in anything, any other part of this book, other than what yeah. they feed the raven. Well, it could just be, give me some Corn King Snow. Ah... Nice. What do you think? Um, yeah, yeah. There's another crazy crackpot. I, but I like the shout out to Vermeer Sixkins as well, and I also liked um, the uh, the the kind of the the talk that that Tormund and John had as they went along about things. Um, I, oh, yeah. You know, I always I always love Tormund. So uh, Tormund's babe. I love it when he's on the page. So uh, what else we got on this chapter? Well, two things about Tormund. He, uh, for one thing, he's obviously like honestly scared. You know, he's. I mean, I think I feel like we got a little more of a sense of his real understanding. You know, when he was asking him, "Did they bother you on your way down?" But then he says, "You know, tell me, I will know all there is to know." Of, and he says, "You know, not here. We'll talk about it on the other side." which I thought, you know, that was a, an interesting, I felt like I learned more about kind of his perspective on this than I knew in the past. And also I got, an, I got a real sense that he, he's really interested in uh, people's, uh, people's uh, what's the, the right way to say this, the, the length and girth of their manhood. There's like six or seven, like, you know, like straight up, like, you know, well, he's not as big. He's even smaller than you, but he wasn't shy about where he stuck it. 
<laughs> I think that just it, it just made me like the character even more. It really didn't didn't bother me a bit. Uh, yeah, right on. Uh, that makes you worry though that he's the guy at the gym in the showers that's checking everybody out all the time. Well, apparently he's got a gold ring around his own, so at least he's got something to show if he's in the shower. <laughs> Susan, do you have any other thoughts, Mick? Oh, I, I love Torment as well, and and I agree. He does seem really concerned about the the, the well, concerned very of like Mike said, fearful of the of the whites and the White Walkers in that situation. And you know, when when he is talking to John too about you know, you just you don't know, you can't understand what it's what it's like. You know, when he's describing. The, his own son's death and, you know, trying to, to fight these creatures. And I do think there was a real interesting point that was brought up there when he asked, you know, can can you cut down one of these with a with a sword? And John's thinking to himself about some of the things that, uh, that Sam had learned and wondering if the Valerian steel may have some equivalent to this dragon steel that he was reading about because it certainly sounds like that would be you know, kind of the same thing since the Valerian steel was formed by dragons, but, uh, but you know, you wonder, you know, are these things connected or not? And just one more thing, too, back about his dream where, you know, where they were talking about, or, you know, he he was, it was saying about how he was holding this, this red burning sword, but then when he cut down Rob, it was with uh, Longclaw. So I was, I, I found that curious as well. Hmm. Are you yeah. implying that Longclaw is Lightbringer? I don't know, or it's just how you know. Sometimes it, with dreams, things are so strange. You know, he could have the, the the sword in his change in his hand could have changed. It could have been this burning sword at first, but then later in the dream, it was Longclaw. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to go yeah. so far as to say that that Longclaw oh. is it because I, oh, I don't. Oh come know on! That. I'll give you a quarter. Come on, let's say it. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, well, I'm implying that, that whatever sword he's holding would be Longclaw, or did Long, or did the the, the or did Lightbringer just belong to the Warmonts? Because that seems a little weird. Yeah, I think there's too many other famous swords that have been mentioned that make better sense as candidates for that than unless than it's Jon Snow. Unless Jon Snow is. The hinge, you know, unless he's the thing, right. and whatever sword he's holding turns it into. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, or I could it be any Valerian steel? I, if I could just interject real quick, I think the making of Lightbringer is about the sacrifice that's made. I don't think it has anything to do with what sword it is. I think it has to do with who's holding and the sacrifice that is made to make it into Lightbringer, which. Mm. Are you saying Val's Could, gonna get a little Nisa Nisid? Uh well I th- I think that perhaps uh, uh Susan brought up a, a while back a theory about maybe Melisande being uh a, a playing a possible role in a sacrifice, right? Yeah, and just one of my theories or ideas, which I mean it's not mine, I know a lot of people have brought this up, is that uh, you know, if there is some connection with uh, John and uh, Daenerys in the feature that 
that could be something that could be an outcome of it. They could kind of recreate that role together. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. We will have to see. Oh, he's just he's got to stick it in somebody's belly, and then Long Claw <laughs> will become Light Slinger. <laughs> I'm Alexandra. And I kind of feel like Dave and Dan feel the same way about Longclaw. And here's why. When I went through the okay. season four histories and Blu-rays about Valerian Steel, who told the story of Valerian Steel? It was, it was Jorah Mormont. And it, doesn't it seem weird to you that a guy that is so broke, as he seems to be in that history thing, uh, won't sell the sword because it's more valuable than anything? It's almost like the gods are compelling him uh, to keep that sword in a certain place because it has a destiny to end up in John's hands. I think that, that now, again, that's not evidence for the books. I'm just saying that I think, I kind of think that's what Dave and Dan believe uh, from their TV show writing. Well, if the sword has to be stabbed into somebody's belly to become, you know, uh, Nisa Nisa to Lightbringer, there's only one person with a belly big enough for the job. Where's Sam? <laughs> oh wow, he's a he's a whole continent away, isn't he? Damn, yeah. he's off with the horn. He's off with the horn of Jormus. Oh brother, this is too confusing. Uh, <laughs> Bubba, what do we got? Uh, anything else? Uh, well, just uh, do we want to set up this choice about hard home about John? He sent a bunch of ships there. And, uh, quote, unquote, it was the right reason. You know, you want to get, you don't want to leave people for the army of the dead that the new trailer is talking about. But he sent, is, is this correct again, 11 ships and uh, five of them are screwed. They're dead things in the water. So who knows how many more of these uh, six ships are going to go? Uh, you know, should John, would a better leader have said that's a lost cause? Or right now, say that's a lost cause. We got to stop this. Yeah. Well, is it too late? I mean, by the time he gets that kind of news, I mean, yeah, Raven, ravens don't fly that fast. I mean, it it may be too late for the poor guy uh, in terms of that decision. Um, that's that's the thing that upsets me the most about it is that even right or wrong decision that now it almost seems like it's out of his hands. Um, anybody else have any thoughts about that? about hard home and what's happening there? Especially with the time it would then take them to get there. Besides the fact that it's taken time for the Raven to get to them, how long would it take them to actually reach there? Right, I and how? Think, well, I guess by land, but gee. Right. Yeah, yeah. I well, did think well, that if... Well, I thought it was interesting that they were talking about how uh, the they wouldn't... You know, they were having trouble getting them to the wildings out there to go with them because they were calling them slavers. And I think that has to do with the fact that they'd already been taken advantage of by those slavers that we heard about in that chapter with Arya. So uh, you wonder if that's complicating things as well. And they're eating their own dead. I mean, yeah, it's just a horrible situation. Well, let me ask you this. Was John wrong to send the ships in the first place? What do you think, Mike? Uh, I mean, on paper, it was a good idea, but, <laughs> you know, a lot of things sound good on paper. I don't know. I mean, it, I it's 
the question to me too is whether or not they want to go. You know, and Susan just mentioned that, like you know, they're calling them slavers, and I mean that makes the job so much more complicated if they don't want to go. And he had no indication that they wanted to go. But I mean, how would he know? I mean, it's not like he can send them an email, get on a Skype session with Hardhome. Yeah, I think initially it was not a bad idea to do it because of the thing that we keep mentioning, the whole the whole rationale about getting these wildings south of the wall and on their side is because they don't want to leave them to become victims of the White Walkers and then become just that many more whites that they're going to have to deal with. But how many resources, didn't John borrow some money to get some extra ships? How many resources would you spend uh, on this mission? Because, uh, you know, if he spent a lot of resources on it and it seems to have turned out so poorly, you know, doesn't somebody have to pay for a bad decision? Well, this is a question, too, and it's kind of like, you know, trying to apply physics to a space movie or something, you know, but the, how how dead do people have to be before they can be brought back? Because He's, he's only partly dead. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> because well, here's uh, I mean, if we're talking about everybody who's ever died north of the wall, then these people at Hard Home are irrelevant. Now, if we're talking about everybody who's died in the last two weeks, the last six months, I mean, I guess that's never really been... We don't know that. We don't have an answer to that question, do we? Right, but right. don't the skeletons who attacked uh, Bran and Team Bran outside the uh, Children of the Forest cave, you know, they admittedly they were really skeletons on the show, but they were kind of described as skeletons, skeletons in the book too, so they'd been dead quite a long time, and yet uh, Team White Walker, Team Others, was still able to recruit them and get them, uh, get them attacking for their side. So, yeah, this is, you know, the, the White Walkers may already have all the numbers they need. Plus, they love dead animals to join in and help them. So, uh, yeah, they're inclusive. And, well, and and the biggest linchpin to this, you know, I I, I, I kind of, but I think in the prior John chapter, I asked, does John think that the wall will fail? Uh, does he have some kind of instinct? And that's why he's thinking, because otherwise, these, these whites are, you know, it's just a matter of holding them off at the gate, right? Um, but if they now, can climb like if the they can, of, if they can climb like they climb that, in his dream. But but now if they know that the horn of Jeremon is still in play, then it seems even more important to get those people from Hard Home out of there, doesn't it? But weren't they at Castle Black when he killed the one that was attacking Mormont? Weren't they at Castle Black? Yes, they were they were on the other side of the wall because they brought those they brought them through the wall because to they the brought black them side. through the wall. Okay, okay. Yeah, they brought them through themselves when they found them. They found them out there when they was doing the, the their oaths to the to the uh, werewood, right? Right, and then brought them back. Okay, so they can yeah. bring them by, but as long as they can hold the gate, they should be okay. That would be my impression of it, um, but I don't know. Could be wrong. But I'm more worried about the Horn of Jeremon, even though we kind of think all think I think that Sam actually has it, so it's probably not as in play. But this has to be really distressing for John right now to find out that Mance didn't 
have it, in fact. Right, Bubba? Yes. Uh, well, I think maybe it's a, it's a sigh of relief that Mance didn't have it. But Mance, if you take Mance at his word, he was never going to blow it anyway. He needed the wall to be up to protect him and his people. So, Right, right. But the fact, but see, the way Tormund makes it sound is like, you know, nobody knows where it is. It's still out there. It could still be on the north side of the wall. And that, I think that's what would be distressing to John. Oh, yeah, for sure. How do we Even know that we know that? I mean, that's, I, is, do we believe him? Believe Tormund or sorry? Tormund, you're right. I believe him. He's, you know, he's he tells the truth about everything except maybe his intercourse with a bear. But everything else, I I think he's a up and up guy. Yeah, and I like you mentioned, Mike. He's heard of everything over on that side of the wall. I don't think he'd joke about something like that. Right. Right. Any other thoughts on John Twelve? Got no. a little little minor uh, thing, just another little uh, Tolkien shout-out here. We have uh, John is sending uh, Tormund and uh, some of his men to Oakenshield. Uh, as, I guess that's the name of one of the other black castles. So Oakenshield, a little uh, Thor and Oakenshield uh, mention there. So I thought that was cute. A hobbit. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I like that uh, the one thing that Ed does like is runny eggs. <laughs> I, I love nice. Ed. He finally actually likes something, and what he does like is something that is weird. I mean, I like it too, but that's weird. Uh, and uh, and har! That's all I got. Har. Har. <laughs> all right. Har! Let's move on to the discarded night. We find Barristan Selmy attending Hisdar Zolarak's court, noting who is there and who is not. He ponders Quentin's presence, his former Kingsguard, and wonders if the accusations against Hisdar are true. A young guy party arrives, presenting Admiral Grolio's head, claiming it payment for the death of their force commander at the pit. They release the, host- they release the hostages that were Hisdar's family the others demanding the destruction of Danny's dragons. Barristan then speaks with Quentin about leaving Marine to ensure his safety. Um, Baba, let's start with you, brother. Go. Well, one of the things that I liked about this chapter was that my boy Hisdar, his court is as screwed up as every monarchy in Westeros. You know, this is just a mess. You know, people come in and complain and fight, and it's it, he's not uh, holding the center as a great leader very well. Uh, and I kind of like that. I think poor Quentin is compared to Mud, and favorably, you know, he's he's just as good as Mud. Good work there, buddy. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, one of the things I don't have an answer for, but as we pour one out, R.I.P. for good old Admiral Grolio, who Danny screwed over big time. Barristan asks, why did they kill him of all the hostages? And I think it's a good question. I he guesses that maybe it's like, well, Grolio they might assume is the least important to us and get Marine upset the least. But I thought it was a good question, and uh, I wondered if there was something more to it. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's very interesting that the, they brought back the hostages that were related to uh, his star, 
his uh, sister and cousins and kept the, the remaining ones that are important to Danny. So what does that say about their relationship with his daughter and how involved might he be with their plotting and some of the things that uh, the shape paid, I think, was intimating with uh, with Barrison before in the previous mm-hmm. Barrison chapter. It's an interesting thought. I had the same thought as well, Susan. Um, Bubba, do you have a response to that, Mr. Hisdar Defender? Well, what I would think is that uh, they know who's in charge now, and why not butter up the person who's in charge? Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Uh, Mike, what do you got, sir? Uh, on this question or on the chapter? On the question, Whatever. I think they killed him because he was the least important person to the story as it currently exists. So <laughs> he's the easiest person for George to cut the head off of. Uh, as far as the chapter goes, I think my favorite part was his conversation with Clinton. Um, you know, because I I took it pretty seriously, you know, and I thought he expressed himself uh, really well, you know, but I think that he was almost kind of talking to himself as much as he was talking to Quentin, you know, not necessarily that someone would suggest he was trying to poison Danny, but you could very easily say that he was trying to poison the king, you know, and whatever, he knows Danny does eat bugs or something, you know. Um, so I kind of, you know, my, I think my favorite part about this chapter was Selmy's sense of foreboding, uh, that I thought was really clear. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting point. Interesting point. You know, uh, Barrison also talks or gives a little recollection to some of his past, uh, the kind of the Barrison, the bold story and, and this Prince Duncan that united him. Um, Susan and, and Baba can probably, and maybe even you too, Mike, I don't know if you've listened to the Mystery Night uh, or the Hedge Night podcast that we did uh, last year or not, but um, is there any, this is, is this one of Aegon's kids? Is this someone who might have been named after Sir Duncan the Tall? This prince, this Prince Duncan? He Gotta is be. one of Aegon's kids. Yeah. Okay, I I, I ju- just wanted to make sure I could put it in the context of time because I was sitting, I couldn't remember how long ago Sir Duncan the Tall was, but uh, if that makes sense. If he if he was someone named after Sir Duncan the Tall and was one of Aegon's kids, and and Barristan was only what? How old was he? Thirteen. Ten. Well, when he did the joust, he was only ten. Yeah. And okay. he hadn't been bold again in his life till now, where he stepped out of his place and told Quentin the, the deal to skip down. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. What other thoughts do we have, guys? He's been more bold than that. He slew Malus the monster. All <laughs> right. Now hold on. Do you call it, that was part of his job? Do you call doing your job bold? You know, one <laughs> of the things that people are tough on old Barristan for, and admittedly, maybe it doesn't relate to this chapter so much. But, you know, the Mad King was mad, and the Mad King did some terrible stuff. And would Barristan have done what Jamie did, done and stabbed him, you know, taken him out? In the books, Jamie cut the Mad King's throat, and the show he stabbed him in the back. But would Barristan have done either of those? Probably not. And so is Barristan somebody we're supposed to admire? Is he, since he's seemingly trying to play the Game of Thrones a bit now, 
by going and telling the Dornishman, hey, this is the gig, you know, as a king's guard or a queen's guard, you're not supposed to do that. And so is he is he right? Is he good? Is he admirable? I, I think from his perspective, perception, excuse me, he's trying to be good. But, uh, you know, I don't know. But he's definitely expressed some regret about Eris, you know. So, I mean, I would say that that doesn't equal bold action or right action, you know. But I think there's some part of him that realizes that he dropped the ball on that one, you know. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that he is honorable, uh, you know, and it is one of those really difficult questions because – it comes down to a matter of, you know, if he was doing his duty as a, a king's guard, which he has done, then he wouldn't have taken some of those actions, even though when we look at, like, what Jamie did in the context of what he did and why he did it, it, it does, you know, it is the right thing to do. But um, still, it's a breaking of the rules of what he should be doing in that particular, you know, role. So. It's yeah. one of yeah. those morally difficult questions. It's definitely one of those things that we talk about a lot in these books, and that's honorable to a fault. Um, that happens a lot oh. <laughs> to a lot of our characters that I think that we've come to like, uh, mm-hmm. and and then and then later on come to say, "Oh, what a dummy!" But you know, yeah, I think the I think the uh, I think the jury's still out on whether Barristan's a dummy yet. Uh, in terms of that, because Jamie did take care of it for him. Uh, well, is, he, is is telling the Dornish this, hey, get out of town, is that the right move? They don't seem to listen to it, let's be honest. But is right. that the right, right honorable thing? Yes. I, I believe so. And especially, even, even if it's put in the context of his role, uh, now, because as he as he reflects on, you know, he really wasn't specifically assigned by Danny to to be there for for his star. So if he's just acting in his role for Daenerys, I think it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think that's a good point. If he's representing her, especially, uh, I think she would have said something similar. Okay. Well, I, I just thought I'd throw it out there. I, on a much lighter note, uh, let me read some descriptions of Jairus Drinkwater. Swordsman's grace, courtier's wit, sun-streaked hair, teasing smile. Is Barristan getting hot for Jairus Drinkwater? What's going on here? <laughs> he also thinks of him as false coin, and I thought that was a really interesting phrase. Well, some people like bad boys. <laughs> The false coin, I guess to me that that infers someone who's deceptive. So I wonder I wondered at that why he why he chose, you know, what was the point of, of that and what is he thinking there that this person is well, not to be trusted? I, I kinda took it a little more superficially. I kinda took it as not need but doesn't really in terms of value. Mm. Okay. Now that was just my interpretation though. Um, Mike, what did you think? What does false coin mean? Yeah, I mean, I read that as him being deceptive. Yeah? Okay. Kind of untrustworthy. 
But it didn't seem, that's what it sounds like to me, but I couldn't understand why he would apply that to him in this context because it doesn't seem like he knows enough about him to to make that kind of a judgment. That's that's why I found it kind of incongruous. didn't seem to make sense. Maybe it's both. Maybe he's hot for him and it's making him a little upset, like a little (laughs) jealous, you know. He's trying to talk himself out of it. He's, he's just a liar anyway. Yeah, he's you know he's no good for me. Let's face it, Bubba. Let's let's face it, Bubba. Everybody is hot for everybody in these books. Even Tyrion is hot for Joffrey, right? Well, yeah, he's always obsessed with him. His That's catchphrase true. is, "Where do kings go?" <laughs> <laughs> what else we got on this chapter, guys? The Seneschal perfume uh yeah his his scent gets caught up again uh on multiple i think at least a couple of times in this chapter to keep that fresh in our mind um but one of the things i thought was you know here a real dilemma and the, and the thing that ended the court for uh for his star is uh is he going to follow through on what the uh youngest are asking him is he going to actually consider Killing the dragons? Hmm. I don't even think he would know how. (laughs) Even if he agreed. Uh, Let's drop some poison locusts in there. Let's see how they do. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if you feed a couple more bowls of poison locusts to to Bestrong Bellwoss and then throw him in there. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that would do it, but I mean, what a thing for them My... to ask! Yeah. Uh, well, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna go to you, Mike, real quick. Why do we keep getting these descriptive names for Barristan? I mean, now that we've introduced him as a POV, why don't we just have Selmy or or Barristan One or or, or something like that? What, what do you? That is, is it because of the the role that he's playing in that might change, or because uh, I mean, there's obviously these precedents of like Victor and Arya Hota, who's another kind of protector guard, but you have Asha, Theon, Arya, uh, even Quentin uh, are all called by different names. Uh, is George just messing with their heads, or is there a purpose to this meta madness? Uh, I mean, I don't think. He's really genuinely introduced Selmy as a POV character. I think Selmy is his, you know, what's going down while Danny's not in town character. Uh, and so I think that, you know, you you keep him with these kind of uh, titles or, you know, these, and so it doesn't commit him so much to really going hard POV with Selmy because that will stop once Danny's back. That's my suspicion, anyway. Okay, fair enough. Um, what else we got on this chapter, guys? Uh, well, it, we, I don't want to make a prediction this early, but I think Barristan might get a little netted before this is all said and done. Wow. The be netting is coming. <laughs> For somebody who's never really had to play the Game of Thrones, to be getting into it this late... Uh, I'm not sure he's the. That's the right move for him. That's a good call. 
That's a, is awful late coming to the game uh, for somebody who made it a point to not be interested in the game uh, for such a long time. Um, that's an excellent point. Uh, and I think, think he reminds, I just think he reminds us a lot of Ned as well in terms of you know his, his honor and and his you know the way he conducts himself and and those things that he values is uh, is rather similar. So I can understand that. Mm-hmm. What else we have on this chapter, guys? Well, just short and sweet. I like it. It certainly flows well into the next chapter. It certainly does. Um, you know, and poor Quentin. I mean, not even Barristan finds him much of a remarkable person. We'll pour one out for Admiral Grolio as we move on to the spurned suitor. Quentin Martell arranges a meeting with the tattered prince. On the way to the meeting, he and his men argue about the plan, Quentin citing what Danny had told him, giving him his reason for going through with his plan. At the meeting, Martell and the tattered prince talk of what is happening on both sides of the city walls and Quentin's proposal to steal a dragon. Hmm. Give us a thought, Mike. Uh, he's going to get eaten by a dragon. Ouch. And he's going to deserve it. Deserve to be by a dragon. I mean, this is not wow. sense. Like, I don't. This is the beginning of me really being confused by this week's chapters. You know, between this one and the next one, I'm just kind of. I don't. These cell sword companies, I have a hard time kind of keeping up with. Um, like what their you know overall, kind of the differences between the companies. I guess, which I, I know there's not a whole lot, but I don't know. So then I just, I end up overthinking this whole chapter because I'm trying to remember kind of who everybody is and what they're doing. Uh, and in general, this is the this is when I really stopped liking Quentin. He's trying to like make a bold move, but, you know, I mean, his own people are telling him this is stupid, and but he's going for it anyway. I just, I don't know. I wasn't very, I wasn't. It's well, you know, it's it's a well-written chapter, but I really don't understand where it's going. Other than to have right. somebody else get eaten by a dragon. Well, Mike, I want to follow <laughs> up on you, and that is is that George R. R. Martin always has people, quote-unquote, speak the truth or reality to the POV characters. He's had, in this in this data breed, he's had Pycelle always telling Cersei, eh, you may not want to do that, you may not want to do this. And sure enough, in this chapter... Uh, about the spurned suitor, he's he he has Jairus Drinkwater again, saying, "Look, you know the old man said it. Let's get out of here." But he also explains the reasons why they never leave. Could Quentin, you know, what would Quentin's nickname go when he went home? It would it would be Quentin the Quitter, Quentin the Failure. And so you understand his. To be honest, the way I looked at it when I read this chapter is, well, now we have a reason for Quentin suddenly existing. And that is he's going to steal a dragon. Before, he, he, you know, his reason kind of seemed iffy to me. But now he's got like a plot. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's good. So, Mike, you're thinking that this is is uh, a demonstration of pride before the fall, then, more or less, is what you're saying, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm just kind of, maybe I'm in love with drink water. And I'm just kind <laughs> of... <laughs> Mawning over him a little too much. I don't know, but 
yeah, I don't think this is gonna this is gonna go well, and I think that that it's going to. I think personally, I think this is more about setting up, you know, issues for, like Danny can't. Okay, so the dragons are going to eat Quentin, and then when she goes there, the people, the Dorn people aren't going to want to be her friend because one of her dragons ate their last chance. So to me, I think, I feel like this is more of a setup for, you know, a book and a half from now, which is fine, but it seems really weird at this point so late in the story, so late in the existing book. Just think Empire Strikes Back. I have a continuation. Susan, any thoughts about this chapter? I think Mike's on to something there about the the setup for in the future. I I fear that myself for uh, when Daenerys gets to Westeros that there's going to be some bad blood there. But... uh, yeah, I, I haven't been a Quentin fan all along. I have to admit that. And uh, one of the things in reading this chapter that I got more interested in was the the tattered prince and mm. just who this guy is. I, you know, we've heard about his requests. He's always wanting people to promise him pentos and. Uh, I, I brought that up last time, and I think we were kind of discussing it. I looked back a little bit in, into it, and he is someone, I guess the tradition there in Pentos is that they uh, had selected someone as the prince of the the city, and he mm-hmm. got all of his special treatment in that role, but if something went bad, then they would execute him and put a new one in his place. And apparently who this tattered prince is, is he was someone that had been selected for that role when um, a previous prince had been uh, taken care of, gotten rid of, and rather than take the role, he fled. So, you know, that's his backstory a little bit. And I'm just, you know, starting to look at this guy a little bit closer and wonder who exactly he is and what his role is in the larger, in the larger story. Do you remember how he's physically described? Yes. Um, he's yeah, kind of described it as a, as somewhat elegant. He's an older gentleman. He's got uh, gray hair or white hair. And he, uh, though he, you know, in this chapter says that, you know, when he takes his tattered cloak off, which is one of his big symbols that he can kind of pass as an everyday man, and he uses high valerian as something that he uses, well, he uses it as kind of their catchphrase for the the company and and certain um, things that he says, so there may be some connection there, valerian connection to him. And what I found real interesting, one of his uh, comebacks to Quentin in here when Quentin was made some comment to them. I'd have to look at it and find it, but it was it was more his response that interested me was that he described himself as um, um, oh, tattered and twisted, tattered and twisty. What a rogue I am! And um, as I was reading some information, looking further into what people had found out about him, 
some people might have brought up that he might have some connection to another historical figure in the Valerians that was that's been called the Rogue Prince, and he actually has some children that were born in Pentos. So, again, he's somebody I think that we want to keep an eye on. Yeah. And I agree. And there, there are a ton of theories out there about this guy. Um, anything from uh, another Targaryen to a mm-hmm. uh, to a Lannister to all, all kinds of all kinds of speculations, which I, I really find a lot of the evidence that's presented for any of these cases to be very speculative. And I'm not. I'm personally kind of taking it as as not to be that important myself personally at this point in the story. It doesn't mean it won't be important later. Uh, Bubba, do you have any additional math for us to do in terms of this tattered prince guy? This phrase that he says, uh, I feel, is is something that might uh, lend something to what his past is, although it's extremely vague. In this world, a man must learn to seize whatever gifts the gods chose to send him. That was a lesson I learned at some cost. Um, is that referring to the fact that he could have been raised to this magister position or this this higher position in Pintos, or what do you think? Well, I think uh, you know you've got to you know whatever gifts the gods choose to send them. I think if he has any royal blood in him, maybe he's missing some parts, is what I'd think. And so he he you know he did all this about approximately he formed his sellsword company all his pento stuff tended to go down about 30 years ago or that's when he once again he he felt uh formed his sellsword company so i think you have to look and i have not done the math is you have to look at what else was happening in the world about 30 to 31 years ago when he uh, formed this and so you know that's a tough in this history where everything's so crazy was that uh, was that the infamous uh, Summer Hall? No, it feels like Summer Hall was. I don't know. I get so confused. Maybe it was Summer Hall. It's uh, it's tough to say. Uh, Summer Hall, I place more to the time of Sir Duncan, right? Which would be about a hundred years ago. No, Summer Hall wasn't that long ago because Rhaegar was born I- I- around Summer Hall. So oh, Rhaegar, okay. if he was alive, he'd. You would assume maybe be around Ned's age, so and Ned in the books I think was in the, his forties. Boy, it's so difficult. <laughs> so maybe he has nothing to do with Summer Hall. Oh, it's so difficult to put everything together. Yeah, yeah, it is difficult. Mike, any thoughts on this chapter other than your confusion? Uh, I mean, I thought, you know, I enjoyed the way the sort the Selfort company was written and the way that they all kind of interacted together and and with Quentin, I thought was, you know, was good, was smart. Um, their their relationship felt really natural, uh, which was nice, you know. But just in general, it just, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know what to do with this chapter. Can can we not all agree that Pretty Marius or Pretty Maris is the scariest person in the room? Keep your shirt on, Pretty Maris. Okay. Yeah, she she definitely she scares me more than anybody else in that room. I would not want to face her uh, on a field of battle. That's for sure. Very true. Uh, re- reaffirmation, I guess, that the pale mayor is uh, within the city walls. 
Uh, but we heard that from Barristan a couple of chapters ago, so that it's not uh, it's not all that new, new in terms of news, but uh, just still something else to keep thinking about, right? Yeah, good call. The the final note I had on this chapter is I always mention about Daenerys. You know, why is she even going to Westeros? When she thinks of home, she thinks about that infamous house with the red door, which was theoretically in Bravos. And so Quentin is real interesting when he thinks about leaving. He thinks of Sunspear, but he's like, oh, it'd be great to visit Sunspear. When he really thinks of home, he thinks of the mountains and uh, the house Ironwood, where he was kind of, you know, fostered. And so it's so interesting that he is, you know, Quentin Martell, you know, son of Sunspear, but he doesn't really even think of that as his true home. He thinks of this place where he was fostering this whole time. And so I, I wondered hmm. if you had gone to Ned or Robert that age, if they had been like, would they have thought of their home castles or would have they thought the Erie where they fostered under John Aaron? I wouldn't think so, hmm. but uh, Quentin is is thinking of iron woods and the mountains, not the uh, desert and the shore of uh, where uh, Sunspear is. Yeah. Pictures up less, Bubba, Quentin or Tyrion. Yeah, boy. Um, maybe they can both be eaten. You know, these dragons are hungry. I don't know. This is a tough call. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, they neither of them measure up to much of a point of being a meal. Uh, but uh, what else do we, anything else on this chapter, guys? Well, we have uh, Zarina, who uh, is the the woman, I guess, who owns this establishment they're meeting at, who leads them down to the to their uh, dungeons. If you remember back at the auction where uh, Tyrion and uh, Jorah Mormont were being purchased, she was she was trying to buy them, or she was like trying to buy everybody as long as she could get them cheap. <laughs> so. Actually, uh, Tyrion helped uh, save Jorah from the fate of probably being one of these uh, uh, people fighting in her pits, fighting to the death in her pits. Nice catch. Nice catch. I like that. Um, very good. What else we got? Anything? All right. Nothing. From one, <laughs> from one <laughs> spurn needs to go home. <laughs> From one spurn suitor to another, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> the Griffin Reborn. We join Mike's favorite character, John Connington, as he takes, <laughs> retakes his home, Griffin's Roost, in the Stormlands. After the quick battle, he overlooks his old lands and recalls his past. After some political housekeeping and a dinner, Connington talks with Hall, who is going through the Raven messages, getting Nancy and Marjorie and Dorn. They discuss forming alliances through betrothal, spawning more memories. The next day, he awaits, surveys, and treats his grayscale, then calls a war council, learning news of other landings, learning news of other landings, ordering that Aegon be brought to the Griffin's Roost for, from camp, and taking steps to ensure that Aegon's presence is not yet known, as well as its on Storm's End itself. When Aegon arrives, he endorses Connington's plan in Let's, Bubba, let's go to you again. Uh, since Mike is confused, maybe we can shed some light. Well, let's start with you, Mike. So what, now you realize that when we were talking about the, the sellswords landing 
in in the Cersei chapter that this is who uh, obviously and, and these this so this is the Golden Company. It's Griffin in the in chapters. I understand that as well, especially in the feast read in the tandem read. It all gets spread out. Um, right. But what can about this chapter? I don't know. I just don't really dig on Fagon, and I don't really understand what the point of this is. So I'm. I feel like this is going to be one of those things that's going to make more sense if I can go back and reread it in the context of where it's going to go. But I really just don't care about Connington. And the most interesting thing about him is the grayscale. But I'm more interested in that because of the way Val was talking about it at the wall. So, like, I'm reading this chapter, but I'm not even... I'm thinking about a whole other chapter. (laughs) I don't know. I just didn't... I just... There wasn't really anything here that, like, caught me uh, in a sense. Like, you know, I'm feeling... I'm feeling like we're supposed to be wrapping these things up and starting to focus on Connington and Fagon just does not feel like wrapping things up. No, it it sounds like the beginning of a new kind of thread, a new adventure, certainly a new invasion. And to what end? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't understand what, why, what makes him think that the, that, that Martell is going to, be interested in dealing with him. I don't understand, like, what makes... Is it just the the kind of presence of Fagon, or is there some other thing that makes him think this is... I don't understand what makes him think this is going to work out. Well, I I think that the primary reason for the Martells being interested is, of course, if uh, they can show that this Aegon is... So he said he as says he is that uh, he's uh, Aelius, Aelius' son who was supposedly had been killed. So if he's alive, they would you think get behind him and be very supportive of him. But do you think he is? Um, I don't. But that doesn't mean that they can't convince them that he is. They may think it. They may want to think it. Oh, uh, that's fair. I think the. I think the most interesting question about that is, you know, there's never really any indication given, uh, and this is two we've had from John Connington now, himself thinks that Aegon is really Rhaegar's son. I mean, he, he's so obsessed with Rhaegar himself that maybe it's easier for him to believe, but is he even pondering the the, the, the extremes of this? And since he he was kind of brought into the game a little later than when the boy was a little Um, How can John Connington be sure even himself? Bubba, do you get any impression that Connington totally believes that this guy is Aegon or any indication that he has any doubts? No, I think he totally does. To be honest, Matt, I want to go back to your point at the beginning of this chapter where you said this, this chapter itself could have been called the spurned suitor. And why were you saying that, Matt? I was saying that because every single thought that Connington has about Rhaegar uh, is is spoken in the context of more than just more than just admiration. Um, and the first thing there's there's a couple of times in this particular set of chapters where parentheses are used, and I don't recall George using parentheses very much. Um, but in this particular chapter, 
uh, the, the time that, that Rhaegar came up to the roof with him, and then it's like, oh, one with a big X. I'm like, did they? The question I find myself asking is, Greg Huntington have some kind of encounter at some point when they were younger. Uh, Matt, you're saying that Rhaegar and John Connington needed to get a room. Well, they needed... Uh, it sounds like he's saying they did. You listen, I'm just saying that that Connington, you know, when he's thinking about stuff, he's like, Rhaegar, Rhaegar, oh, Elliot wasn't good enough for him. You know, like, hello, buddy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Chill out. Yeah, this guy has it for Rhaegar. And... Uh, just I don't, don't, don't get it uh, because uh, I mean I don't have any problem with the fact that Rhaegar might have had some bisexual tendencies. I think that's fine. But he has Aaliyah. He has two kids with her. Then he he goes Liana, and we think has a kid with her. Um, but in all of this connection out of proportion. Is is he just the crazy one here? Is what I'm I guess is what I'm asking more so than wondering the validity of what might have happened between the two of them. Well, yeah, I don't know what happened between the two of them, but Connington because he has this, you know, want, you want to call it love, you want to call it fanboyitis with Connington. It's like he couldn't even look at at this Aegon and think of he's fake Aegon, fake on. He just he just has to accept it. It's like a lifeline to him. And so hmm. uh, that's that's my interpretation of it is that he wouldn't he couldn't even consider that this wasn't his hero's son. And so uh, if he has to sell the Martells, I, I think he will. Yeah. Uh interesting point uh susan uh this is the first time from from connington's perspective that we've gotten any information about the battle of the bells did any of that uh, i thought that was interesting i liked how you know he was looking back on the situation and and thinking you know as he'd been told if it had been uh uh tywin lannister in that situation he would have burned the place to the ground and that you know, a lot of the reason that he did, you know, that he was defeated there and that he, he didn't capture Robert was because of his own pride and how he had wanted to be the hero of the day. And and uh, that's a great deal of why he, why he wasn't successful. Yeah. yeah, I loved this history. I thought, uh, I thought it was great. I just for me, you know, I hear about the War of Nine Penny Kings, or hear about some of this stuff, and I, it kind of glazes off. It doesn't interest me so much. But I, I still think Robert's Rebellion is just like a, a highlight, a, a fascinating point of the past, and I love they keep covering it. When the Blu-rays and DVDs come out, you know, those are the parts that I actually love the best. Not the ancient history, not kind of you know, here's a fact about a maester's chain, but you know, once again, people looking at this all the different perspective of Robert's Rebellion and how it, everybody has a different thought on it and how, how it's Connington's ultimate failure. And he really isn't back in Westeros until he's uh, back now as patient zero for Grayscale. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what interests you, Mike. So, uh, I mean... Uh, I understand where you're going with the fact that, you know, obviously it, it's 
it's progressing on him. Uh, so whatever treatment he's doing without trying, first of all, I see everything about this chapter to me, Mike says that Connington's not nearly as smart, uh, as, as I don't know, as maybe he ought to be because even treating himself properly, he's just trying to come up with a poor substitute, the generic, he's in bad wine. You know, I, I, so I'm with you in the fact that I don't know how much writing is left on the wall for Connington himself. Uh, what the, what the, how does it make you feel? I mean, does it just feel like a complaint to you? Is that why this is frustrating or? I mean, I, you know, I guess Aegon had to have a way to get there, so. Here we go. You know, and yeah. then they can cut his arm off once he's actually arrived. And then we can all move forward, I suppose. I don't know. I've just, this, you know, the talk of, of him, because I had kind of read his Rhaegar comment. I thought Rhaegar was a little bit older than him, like enough older than him that maybe he kind of, like, just really looked up to him in that way. I hadn't read it as them having some sort of a sexual connection or really even like an in uh, a um and kind of like an intense personal connection in that way you know i had thought of them as being enough different in age so it does make it more interesting to think about it that way it makes the whole agon thing make a lot more sense to think about it that way as this kind of you know this last vestige this symbol of you know what he would think of as at least his greatest friendship if not, you know, maybe his his shot at one true love, you know. Um, and it was because in the, yeah, I mean, that does make it more interesting to think about it that way. Okay. Was this, what did I, because I, did anybody else read it? Because I, I didn't realize they were of an age, so that would make a big difference. I thought Rhaegar was a little bit older. Right, he could have been, you know, looking up if if Rhaegar was a bit older, he could have been looking up to him as like an an older, you know, role model, like I do with Justin Bieber. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> I think it's pretty much uh, crushing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I mean, whether it was returned or not, I don't think we get any answer to that. But I think it's it's pretty clear as the the feelings from Connington's side. I think yeah, ultimately definitely. my issue was that I felt like he was just kind of using the Aegon thing as an excuse for him to try to get his his chicken coop back. Oh yeah, it, it worked. Right, but I hadn't thought of it as as going much deeper than that, you know. And so this, you know, putting it into that kind of context and perspective does make it. It just makes the character a little bit more interesting and a little bit less just kind of usury and greedy. <laughs> you can be uh, usury and greedy. It's just it's nice if you have some other motivation as well. Sure. Now let let me uh, let me throw out a couple uh, other a couple of Bubba points real quick. And that, according to Connington, Rhaegar knew Elia Martell, his wife, couldn't have any more children. In, but we also know from that Rhaegar was one of these people who believed that the uh, dragon needed three heads. So is this another reason why Rhaegar might have kidnapped good old 
It's Miss Stark. Sorry, now I'm blanking on her Le- name. Too many E's. Liana. Liana. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a good. That's another. That's another possibility in there. Although we do know that uh, from as far back as as the uh, the Night of the Laughing Tree story that that he kind of had it for Liana already, right? True. Well, yeah, Elia had a, he was hot for Leon. If the timeline gets a little screwy, but theoretically Elia had Aegon after he had already met Lyanna Stark at Harrenhal. It, it is very odd. That's mm. for sure. Yeah. And then, then my, uh, can you do the math? And this might be a super tricky one. So I'll ask Susan, uh, Connington, he remembers Rhaegar singing. Oh, it was so good. He sang his song of love and doom. What song is that, Susan? Um, I don't know. You've come me, Bubba. Isn't it the infamous Jenny of Old Stones? And that's kind of, kind of certain people have big theories about this as well. Jenny of Old can I, Stones. Go, man. Can I just can I can I just do this just once? Dun dun dun. <laughs> I, <laughs> Uh, I like that, Bubba. I, I, I think that that's uh, I, I think that's spot on. Uh, I hadn't thought I, of it myself. It, go ahead, Susan. I just I said I definitely do want to know more about Jenny of Old Stone's story and and her uh, the uh, the lady from Whole High Heart that apparently came to court with her. I definitely want to know more about that. Exactly right. The old ghost or old lady or old child of the forest, possibly of High Heart. Remember how back in. Boy, now I'm getting confused. Was it the third book where she kept wanting to hear that song when they would come to her uh, yes. her little yeah. cave there underneath all the weirwood trees? And then we find out through, you know, you have to do the math, meaning you can't go to different chapters and, add, and find these facts and add them all up. We find out that uh, there were a lot of prophecies about, uh, you know, the prince who was promised coming from certain lines and that kind of stuff. And so uh, would that have come from, and it implies that it came from this infamous uh, ghost of High Heart woman who was friends with Jenny of Old Stones who possibly died there at uh, uh, Summer Hall. So yeah, I mean, it is, you should read some of the fun stuff people online have written about this, but it, it goes pretty deep. And pretty much any time this song is mentioned, it is, it always talks about how it is uh, a song of love and doom and someone, you know, falling out of a tower and stuff. And so uh, there's a chance Rhaegar wrote it himself. And it, it certainly feels like that's the song he sings here when he visits the old Griffin's Roost. Mm. More minutia math, Bubba. Maybe you can help me out with this. The name Estremont struck out to me uh, a little bit. Is that a Robert thing? Well, Estermont, hold on. So those, boy, now i got to do the math. Uh, give me the context again. Uh, Greenstone, and I, I keep thinking of, of uh, Robert, there being a story that Cersei mentioned somewhere about Robert having a little fling with an Estermont somewhere. Oh, right. Good point, yeah. And so um, hmm, it's an island we know right there that should be part of uh, the Baratheon territory of the Stormlands. And so, yeah, hmm, I'm trying to remember that story, too. Hmm. There, You know what, Robert probably has bastards everywhere. Yeah, I'm just wondering if, if there's an illusion that there might be another possible bastard somewhere around there. 
that has that Cersei didn't uh, and and Joffrey didn't count in their in their uh, in their counting. Well, you know the Estramons have to be pretty good because what is their sigil? It's a turtle, aka the symbol on George R. R. Martin's sailor hat. So they've got to be pretty good guys. Ah, interesting, interesting. We have to assume that they're the ones that got the ravens out to, uh, that allowed Kevin Lannister to have the information, right? Right, mm-hmm. for sure. Right. Oh. Anything else on this chapter, guys? I like the uh, the fact that the lord of this uh, Griffin's Roost now is uh, Red Ronnet, who we know from uh, Jamie and Brienne. He was the one that uh, last time we saw him that uh, Janie punched after they had that little confrontation about uh, Brienne because I believe Red Ronnet was one of one of her suitors, one of the several men that uh, her father had been trying to get her engaged to. Right. Right. Absolutely. No comments? Okay. Uh... Not about Brienne, no, please. <laughs> what else do we have then? I, I think uh, so. Is Tarth in this general area as well? I, I don't quite understand where Tarth is located. Well, Tarth is a much bigger island, and Tarth is, for lack of a better word, just a little bit northeast of Storm's End, while these two okay. islands are kind of around this hook, and so they're kind of more. Uh, southeast as opposed to northeast from Storm's yeah. End. And you've got a you got a boat around this uh cape. Well and and you know, Connington's got his own problems here. He he's got a force that's being, you know, pretty much just slingshotted onto the shore wherever the boats can get to. Um so he's got to get them all together. Although uh I guess he does have news that everybody's marching on their individual little places, right? Yeah, including his <laughs> elephants. Yeah, those elephants. There's a couple of guys in here that really want those elephants bad. Bang, for sure. Do you want to, uh, does anybody want to know how, uh, you know, Cunnington's like, I'll take Storm's End with Guile. How, how is this possible? You know, how how is Fagon going to lead the raid? Boy, this sounds like a recipe for disaster. He, he, and, uh, he and this burn suitor, Quentin, uh, Fagon and Quentin should get together for a we don't care chapter uh, of, of, of epic fails. I thought that was the most interesting part of this chapter, though, was their their plans to take Storm's End and to do it by guile. So I'm how would you do? I'm it? really curious. I don't know, but I yeah, I, I obviously they've got some idea about how they're going to do this, and it's going to be by some stealth means. I mean, do they have somebody inside that uh, could be on their side? Well, could they just, you know, this is the one of the, you know, could they just march up with the sigil of the Griffin's Roost and kind of, you know, say, hey, we're here, you know, we're your buddies, let us in, and almost mm. do a Tywin Lannister type move, as Tywin did to King's Landing in, in the uh, Robert's Rebellion. It's interesting. It is interesting that he ponders how Tywin would have handled the Battle of the Bells and then talks about it. That's a great connection right there to me, Bubba, although it's, you know, Again, I'm just reaching for connections, but I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. Anything else on this chapter? Hopefully, Fagon uh, can make a smoke monster. <laughs> <Yeah>. But Fagon <laughs> is, is really 
kind of uh, being a uh, just kind of showing his age right now too. It, it seems like not even what Connington makes a remark in this chapter that uh, that he doesn't listen to him uh, quite as much as before he was named a prince, right? Yep. Yeah. Now so. that everybody knows he's you know the, he's the quote unquote heir, uh, you can't put that back in the bottle. Yeah, can't put that back in the bottle. Right down to the Kingsguard, can't put that back in the bottle. At least he hasn't named all seven of them yet, right? <sighs> <laughs> let's uh, let's move on to the sacrifice. Let's talk about Asha Greyjoy and Ali Mormont, who are watching a sacrifice fire to the Lord of Light being built as they finish their fishing. The religious debate ensuing as Asha recalls her impressions of weirwood trees. Four soldiers who are caught cannibalizing a lord are then sacrificed, Asha noting Stannis and Arnulf Karstark in attendance as well. Uh, Clayton Suggs threatens Asha will be next, but Ali Mormont and Justin Massey come to her defense. She then goes to dinner with Massey where the current situations are discussed. When a hot debate breaks out, she leaves the hall and is confronted by subs again, but they are interrupted when a riding party arrives unexpectedly with several of Asha's followers. Tycho Nestorius, or pardon, Tycho Nestorius, the Iron Banker, Jane Poole, and none other than her brother, Theon, arrive. Okay. Um, let's start with you, Susan. Well, this is the first... Uh Asha chapter that I've been involved in discussing with you all. So I do want to bring up the point that I do like her chapters in the book. I think all of them have been pretty interesting. And this is another one. Uh, we get uh, an update on what's going on here with Stannis and his his whole uh, campaign. And everybody is pretty miserable at this point. Uh, and you know, I just I think there's a lot of interesting little things going on here, uh, and I know that we're gonna uh, bring up quite a bit of them. Uh, that I'm not gonna try and get into all that minutia right now, but I I like how Asha and this uh, uh, Mormont spend time going out there. You know, they've been out there fishing. I like their their emphasis on going out to that tree, and and there's a lot of detail that's given about this particular weirwood. And I just think it's interesting that they focus so much on it here. All right. Weirwood, Bran, drink. All right, I'm done. (laughs) Weirwood, Bran, blood, drink. Okay, good point. Uh, Does that mean we should should take a drink every time we we hear about another weirwood? Yep. (laughs) Well, we're all hammered by this point, let's be honest. (laughs) Uh, brand, brand, brand. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like one thing that, that happens in this, that, and I'm going to go straight into some minutia here and I'm going to talk to, I'm going to talk to you, Susan, about it because I know you're a huge Manderly fan, but I wonder what kind of quandary, you know, we see Stannis having to sacrifice, he's allowing these four guys to be sacrificed for cannibalism. Uh, you got Manderly over there with the Boltons, uh, I mean, really helping from the inside, or at least taking his own little acts of vengeance. Um, 
what if Stannis finds out that they cook the phrase in a pie? You think that <laughs> Manderly's going to get the same fate? And wouldn't that be terrible? Uh, I don't think he would. I don't. I, I don't think he would because I think that uh, Stannis would uh, appreciate the uh, the vengeance done there. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> So he'll cut off Davos' fingers for being a smuggler, even though the smuggling saved his siege and stormed in. He'll he'll burn these guys for cannibalism, but he won't burn Manderly? Come hold on. on. Well, hold, hold on, okay. Matt. Ma- maybe he'll have to come up with some punishment, but like with Davos, it'll be where it's, you know, okay, you get credit for, for what you accomplished there. We'll have to think of uh, a punishment for what you did wrong, but it won't be equivalent. It won't be this this extreme. Hold on, hold uh, on, Matt. How did those pies get baked? Well, they got baked in the Lord of Light. It's all good. Ah, I see, I see. Yes, they, they were they were crisped in the in the night fires and offered to the Lord of Light. Sure, a southern a southern lord in a northern land working in the name of the Lord of the Light. I don't know about that, Bubba. I just don't know. Listen, the pie is dark and full of tendons. <laughs> oh, we're going there. Anyway, uh, I find I, I kind of look forward to that moment when Stannis finds out about that. Now, I want to see how he reacts to that. I think that will be a good judgment as to whether he makes it onto the Iron Throne or should be on the Iron Throne or not. Personally. Now, now, Matt, do you think, you know, they're on this little kind of place between two lakes, which the lakes have got so many holes in it, it looks like cheese. Don't you think there's a good chance Manderley could be coming to Stannis, step on one of these lakes, and just sink straight to the bottom through the cracked ice? He's a big man. He's a big man, and he does like his cheese, so he might be attracted <laughs> to walk that way. Uh, no, uh, I'm sorry. Points about this chapter. Let's go. Uh, how about you, Bubba? Oh, well, okay, so I would say that uh, the arrival of Tristan Bosley there at the end, I had just a hard time. Them all, you know, like Stannis can't move three a three days move, but somehow Christopher Botley and Tycho Naharis could get there. I thought that was kind of a, it's like, is this magic? How are they moving through the snow where nobody else seems to be able to? And I thought it was interesting that the chapter leaves off on the question of where did Massey go after? Because Massey, by the way, he talked in the long haul. He's he, while he loves flirting with Asha Greyjoy, he seems to have lost total faith in this mission. He's like, you know, if we go there, we'll die. We do this, we'll die. We do this, we'll die. And so it's kind of like, uh, what's his plan here? Where did he go? Did he go just jump in the lake and say enough of it is enough? I'd also say that Sanus uh, keeps burning a beacon fire atop his watchtower every night there. And uh, isn't that kind of giving away? He burns the beacon fire night and day. So isn't his, his position isn't exactly well hidden. It's like, here I am. Not only that, but it allows Arna Karstark to find him, it seems like to me. Um, yeah, and Karstark, yeah. Uh, you got to do the math on this, and it's kind of tough math because everything's so complicated. Karstark is secretly on Bolton's side, isn't he? He is. Uh, that's who we suspect is the is the Karstark on on his side, and I, I think it's been said even so much in, in maybe a Theon chapter somewhere or something. Uh, not exactly sure. I don't exactly recall where we read it, but I, I do think that we've we've seen some concrete evidence of that for sure. Um, so traitor in his midst, 
he's down to nothing in food. He's not moving his men. Uh, his men are eating each other. Um, Mike, you said that Stannis isn't going to make it out of this book. Do you, do you still maintain that? I mean, there's nothing in this chapter that suggests different. Uh, you know, that's a big thing to say, I know, because, you know, he's an important character and all, but so far, I mean, there's nothing in this chapter that suggests any different. I'm reading this chapter, and it, this chapter felt more to me like it was about, you know, now Asha's got Theon to go and try to get rid of Crow's Eye, you know. To me, it felt more like it was about that and their kind of meeting, which I enjoyed, you know, this at the very end. But it was weird to read a whole chapter about Stannis and his people that didn't really, didn't suggest any better news for them. I don't know. I'm not feeling any better for him. And especially not now that Melisandre is hanging out with Jon, who has the actual sword. It's it's all bad for Stannis. Mm. Mm. Indeed. Now, I don't think Justin Matthew would go commit suicide because I think he is wanting to get Asha Greyjoy's hand. He's wanting Stannis to give her to him so that uh, he can, can uh, you know, profit from, from that relationship. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. What else we got on this chapter? Well, the showing up of that... Uh, the banker, the iron banker at the end, one of the things that makes me wonder is, uh, you know, it, if they're going to get around to playing something like this here, uh, you know, are we going to see a return of the iron bankers in season five? And, uh, you know, are we going to get uh, the, the, that actor from Sherlock, I'm blanking on his name right now, to, to come back from that? Do you, you want me to spoil you on that one way or the other? Sure. <laughs> All right, yeah, Mark Gaddis is scheduled to appear. In fact, he's giving oh, okay. interviews about filming. So uh, now, as to what context uh, he filmed or, or what scenes he filmed, I don't think it's uh, been made available yet, but he is definitely in season five. Mm. Uh, but to see, to me, this whole thing about Tycho showing up here um, reflects to me the fact that we've already seen in season four that he made a deal with Stannis. So it it seems to me like this this is the beginnings of the Iron Bank Stannis partnership here, which was brought forward into season four in, in the television show, right? Right. Okay. Yes. Um so uh so I don't know, you know, in context of will this actually happen? It still may happen. Uh one never knows. But uh, something that is interesting, though, is, and we talked about hope for Stannis or not ever, I actually do have hope for Stannis in this because the one guy who knows that Karstark is a fake is now in the camp with Stannis. Right? Gotta help. I mean, if Theon gets, gets enough balls to say something other than, I'm Theon, that's my name, uh, then perhaps... Uh, perhaps there is hope for Stannis, at least from that immediate threat, because that seems like to me to be the most immediate threat. Uh, and it was good to see that uh, now we know that it wasn't Stannis' people at Winterfell. Well, it's one group fighting for Stannis. It's Moore's Umber 
uh, who's out there beating drums and stuff, just kind of making noise to get everybody all riled up. Um, but we know now that Stannis isn't isn't there himself, so I can see your frustration, Michael. Like, what what's happening? Why why are we just sitting here? What's going on? But it's great that it's great that Theon is there, in my opinion, because I think. I think that makes uh, hope for Stannis a little better. What do you think, Bubba? Any point? Well, I just want to say that I had always, and this is my own thing. I don't want to talk about spoilers for the rest of this book. But the first, by the first time I read this, and the first time I was at this point, I always believed in Melisandre's prophecy. I thought she had a vision in the flames of Stannis sitting on the Iron Throne. So I always assumed at one point or another it had to come true. And so uh, at this point in my first read, I thought Stannis, yeah, he's doing real bad right now. But uh, his uh, enemies, who are just three days away, are in just is in a you know barely better position in that they're indoors. Otherwise, they're kind of screwed too. That's a good point. That's a good point. What else do we have on this uh, chapter, guys? Well, we know that uh, that we have troops heading out of Winnell. Winterfell that have been sent out because of the fighting that they were doing. It's like, you know, we're not going to sit here anymore. We're going to go out and fight because Roose doesn't want, you know, didn't want to deal with that anymore. Um, so the fact that Stannis does have that uh, beacon light burning um, may very well provide a way for them to, to find him. And I'm not sure that that's a bad thing for Stannis. That's a good point, too. I mean, I, I believe in the power of the, uh, the Iron Bank. So, you know, that is the one thing that, that I think he potentially has going for him, you know, is that he's got these guys on their side. But he shows up with, you know, I mean, like four or five dudes on horses. So I don't really, they seem really powerful. You know, everybody talks about them. They've got like almost a mythology, you know, but. I mean, these, you know, does he even have a sword on? Like, I don't know how much good that's really going to do him right this second. That's a good point. That's a good point. We'll have to see, I guess. What other thoughts do we have on this chapter? Uh, Poor Jane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one who's surviving there with with Theon. Yeah, she lost a bit of her nose, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, frostbite, yep. But to be honest, wouldn't we all sacrifice that to get away from Ramsey? So she's no better <laughs> off. Yes. Uh, Matt, you're the one who always brings these up, but why is this not called uh, Asha? Why is it Why is it called The Sacrifice? That's a great question. Uh, because for me, uh, I and I especially remember this the first time I read this chapter, uh, the first time I ever read this book, um, I thought, wait a minute, we've gone away from the point of view and we're talking about an action in the story rather than a person. But I guess I guess the, the sacrifice is in relation to, to maybe to Clayton Sugg's threats um, and the fact that she even kind of feels like that eventually that will be her fate. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think, that, uh, to be honest, I don't know. I, I 
thought for a long time it was how people saw themselves as, you know, like I'm no longer, you know, I'm uh, the only way I see myself is the, you know, is the discarded knight. You know, yes, I have a name, but people look at me and all they see is a discarded knight. And so uh, one of the things that our boy Iantrone, everybody's favorite Iantrone in the chat room, he thought that if George R. R. Martin's own POV chapter would be titled The Giggling Author. <laughs> I thought that was a good point. Uh, I don't know. It, it seems much more specific. Maybe, once again, she is just seeing herself as a sacrifice and not even as a person at this point. But uh, it doesn't read that way, so I'm not sure why he titled it The Sacrifice. Yeah, that 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 was a point of confusion for me too. Like I said, I, I felt like, oh, is George breaking the mold? Is he actually talking about action in a story rather than about a specific person? Uh, especially with the contents of this particular chapter. Susan, do you have an opinion on that? I'm afraid I don't. I really don't have anything to add to what you've already said. I mean, sacrifice—they've been taught, you know. I felt like it was kind of a a statement about where they're at psychologically, you know, because people have been calling for this, um, but they haven't been doing it, you know, and so now it's it's kind of, you know, it was an interesting thing to me, like, because it, it didn't really feel to me like, and I wasn't, my opinion wasn't changed by reading the description of his, of, of Stannis actually being there. It kind of felt to me like he had a, you know, why he wouldn't be punishing Manderly later is because more than anything else, this was just like a way to like, all right, fine, burn some people. Like, now we got some guys, they were eating guys, do it, just do it. Like, it'll make them shut up, you know. Um, so it seemed to me like calling it sacrifice was really about where the camp is at psychologically as opposed to it being about Asha specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess the debate continues, Bubba. We've all kind of got our own viewpoints on it. Um, so what's the right answer, man? <laughs> wait for so, the next book. <laughs> and wait for the next book. All right. What, is it 2017 yet? Uh, is it 2017 yet? <laughs> oh, man. What else do we have on this chapter, guys? Anything? No, but it, it it feels like it has to happen soon. Stannis can't stay out there in this gold too much longer. Now, admittedly, if Theon just showed showed up, uh, the troops that Bolton sent out, meaning the Frey and the Manderley troops, should be showing up real soon. But uh, this situation can't go on. Everybody's going to starve to death. I mean, uh, something's got to happen right now. Something's got to happen pretty quickly, you would think. One would think. All right, well, let's go on to uh, our ranking of these chapters this week. And, Susan, let's start with you. Okay. Um, I really enjoy the John chapter. And so, yes, yeah, one of the reasons I want to uh, join you all this week because I love John and Tormund giant Spain together and the whole situation of what's going on up there. So that would be my first one this week and followed by, by this one, The Sacrifice. Um, because I think that, again, the situation that's building up here and, you know, what's going to come of all this when they all come together is just uh, building up a lot of tension. It's going to be very interesting. So John followed by the sacrifice and then uh, 
Bearson's uh, Discarded Night. Um, I do love Bearson. And uh, then, uh, geez, between Clint, uh, Quentin and and uh, the Griffin's Roost, I'm not sure which of those. They, they kind of rank, they tie for fourth and fifth for me. All right, and Bubba, how about for you? Okay, well, I'm going to jump in, and I'm going to say on the second read, I'm actually going to put John number one as well, just because of almost like the first couple of paragraphs of this chapter and that infamous, a.k.a. spoiler alert, dream. I would put the Spurn Suitor number two, mainly, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of any of these characters, but when you say, hey, it's going to end on let's steal a dragon, I'm like, okay, I'm down with that. I would put the Sacrifice 3, the Discarded Knight 4, and then just because, uh, God bless them, I'm not down too much with Connington and Fagon either. I thought it was an interesting chapter, but they're number five for me. All right, and Mike, you? Uh, I'm going to... I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go with discarded night first, um, and because I'm really interested in what's happening there right now, and he's maintained my interest through chap two chapters without Danny and the dragon, which is obviously the thing. I don't know. I'm just in, more interested in Marine than I have been for a thousand pages. So I'm gonna go with discarded night, and then John. Because uh, I like all the member talk, I guess. <laughs> and then uh, I think probably Spurn Suitor, Sacrifice, and uh, the Griffin. Nobody likes Connington, man. I guess you just waited too long. I like Connington. I'm going to go John first, and then I'm going to go the Griffin Reborn. Because <laughs> I, I, loved all of, I love all of that stuff. Uh, just... Uh, you know, the excitement, for me, the excitement of, of the fact that, that Connington just really has it for Rhaegar. I think that was a big thing for me. Uh, even though it had been hinted at in the prior chapter, too, uh, I, I feel I feel like that this was just an out-and-out, hit-you-over-the-head kind of thing for me. Uh, then I am going to go the Discarded Knight, love me some Barristan, uh, and then the Sacrifice. And then the only thing that really interested me in the Spurn Suitor on a second read, and again, I'll say on a second read, uh, was the tattered prince? Uh, otherwise, you know, I, Mike, you know, I'm with you. The first time I I, I read this chapter, uh, and especially, I, I just I just feel like it's like, well, that's like the stupidest plan ever. Why am I even reading about this? Oh, maybe maybe it's about the tattered prince. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to get out of this chapter. Anyway, uh, so there's my ranking. We have feedback next. Actually, we don't have feedback we don't have any feedback but we do yeah you know i i think that my email must have stopped working this week or something or maybe i made too many people angry by shortening their emails last week i'm not sure but either way i do have poll results for you in our westerosi deathmatch presented by harold uh and so uh the sweet 16 results are here in landslides ned won over maya stone sir duncan the tall over brienne of tarth Cyril Pharrell over Maester Eamon, surprise, surprise. Barristan Selmy over Leaf, the Child of the Forest. Samuel Tarley over Penny the Dwarf. And in closer matches, maybe this one even an upset, Gendry beats Euron Greyjoy. 
Cersei wow. barely edges out Reek, and Nymeria <laughs> beats Jock and Hagar. So uh, th- th- those are some pretty interesting matches. We're down to our Elite Eight, so for the sake of making this feedback section just a little longer, I'll e- ask each of our uh, panelists here to vote uh, for these Elite Eight matches. Here we go. Susan, you're first. Ned Stark versus Cyril Pharrell. Oh, dear. Uh, I mean, you would think that Ned is the seasoned warrior, but, man, uh, I'm going to go with Cyril. All right. And Mike, you. Ned Stark versus Cyril Ned Pharrell. Ned all the way. Ned all the way. Oh. It's the be serialing. Bubba, you're the tiebreaker. Ned Stark or Cyril Pharrell? Cyril is my vote. All right. Now, folks, don't forget, you can go to podcastwinterfell.com and vote yourselves. You have uh, a couple more days left uh, to vote for this week's Elite Eight matches and, and kindly do so. Uh, I, hopefully, I time this turning out to where it'll be over when we're done with our book read. I'm not sure. I may have to announce the results on a different podcast. We'll find out. Uh, next match. This one goes to you, Bubba. Sir Duncan the Tall versus Samuel Tarley. Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> oh, you've got to be kidding. Oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, Sir Duncan di- died years ago. I'll give it to Sam. Wow! <laughs> the Cinderella story for Samuel continues, uh, at least as far as Bubba is concerned. Mike, how about you? Uh, he's dead, but he's not a white, so I'm giving it to Dunk. All right. Susan, you are the tiebreaker. Yeah, you know, as much as I love Sam, I'm going to have to go with Duncan as well. All right. All right. Uh, and again, folks, you can vote at podcastwinterfell.com. Look for the West Jersey Deathmatch tab uh, there. Uh, third match, and we should go to you, Mike. Sir Barristan Selmy versus Cersei Lannister. Oh, man, I'm giving it to Barristan with great relish. He'll he'll even enjoy himself. (laughs) And Susan, how about you? I I agree. I agree with Mike's sentiments all along. All right. Well, uh, Bubba, uh, you don't need to do a tiebreaker, but who would get your vote? Is it okay to vote for neither? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can vote for Barristan's beard. That would probably be too. Right, sure. Yeah, give give me the beard plus the points. <laughs> All right, and Gendry versus Nymeria the Direwolf. Back to you, Susan. Gendry and Nymeria? Uh, yes. Huh. Nymeria. I mean, look at all these people she's been taking out. Right. Uh, and, and Baba, how about you? Gendry versus Nymeria. Uh, I would say, didn't Arya back in the first book pretty much throw a, a little rock at Nymeria and she ran? Give me Gendry. Wow. <laughs> that means the tiebreaker comes down to you, Mike. Gendry versus Nymeria the direwolf. Give it to the wolf. I'm not going to be responsible for taking another wolf's head off. Give it to the wolf. Okay. <laughs> now, see, what I find most interesting is, is the way this bracket is set up, we could actually have Ned Stark versus Dimeria the Direwolf in the final oh, match. Oh, that'd be awesome. Wouldn't that be awesome? But we'll have to see how everybody votes. Once again, you have until midnight Eastern time, Thursday, March 12th, to vote. So please do so. 
And that's it for this week, folks. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for joining our guests. Thanks to my guests for joining me. Susan, let's start with you. How can people talk to you about this great A Song of Ice and Fire book series? Uh, as always, I can be found on Twitter at Black Eyed Lily. Excellent. And Mike, the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour is eagerly uh, awaiting its next issue, or we're eagerly awaiting its next issue. <laughs> and how can people talk to you on uh, about A Song of Ice and Fire, sir? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Fifth Column Film, and the uh, latest episode, the, the next episode of Captain Punishment Adventure Hour, which is going to be episode one of a, I think, four-part story arc, uh, went to the mixer uh, this week. So today, actually, went to the mixer. So it should be up, hopefully, I want to say next week. Um, sometime next week, hopefully, we'll have the first one up. And when it's ready to go, I'll be crowing about it at Fifth Column Film on Twitter. It's going to be a good one, man. I can't wait. Uh, can't wait. Right on. Well, uh, I know that uh, I tweeted to you that it would be great if we could uh, if we could have it come out on St. Patty's Day so that we could listen to it while we're drinking our green beer and snort that green <laughs> beer right out our nose. Uh, but we'll see. Somebody else who will make me snort green beer out the nose anytime I listen to the Joffrey of podcasts will be Bubba. How are you, sir? Tell us uh, how to contact you. I'm still you. awake. Hopefully our listeners are. Uh, <laughs> shout out to everybody in the chat room like Ian Trone and uh, Fizzlehoff and Mandatory. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, everybody. And I want you to find me. There's a secret message hidden if you follow me 12 times. It's at Fit and Trim, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M, at Fit and Trim on Twitter. All right. And as for me, I'll be sitting down reading the next chapters of this oh my God. A Dance with Dragons, one being Victorian, then The Ugly Little Girl, then Cersei, I guess that's 12, and then Tyrion, 12, and then The Kingbreaker. And remember that each week's reading material currently can be found in the 2014 and beyond tab at podcastwinterfell.com. I'll probably take that down uh, once we get to our last week since it won't really be necessary anymore. But feedback on those chapters or any of the chapters so you don't just have to listen to us doing the, the Westerosi deathmatch, you can send me feedback. Here's Axel Foley to tell you how. Call recording has been completed. Yeah, I'm getting up. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.